was called The Future Project, and it helped young people discover and pursue their passion and purpose. And the idea was to help everybody in the building discover who they are, what matters to them, and what they want to do about it. Any coherent story of my life at this point would, by necessity, involve a very significant amount of magic. That's the card more than any other card that we printed during that time period. I got the most emails of, you know, this is going to just totally kill magic. Hello, everyone. Happy New Year and welcome to Humans and Magic, the podcast that gets deep and personal with your favorite Magic the Gathering personalities. I am your host, James Sue. I want to start off by wishing everybody a happy new year, and I hope that your year is already off to a good start. This is episode 64 with Zach Hill. Zach Hill was a previous lead designer for Magic the Gathering and is currently the COO of the Future Project, which is an initiative to help companies and individuals who want to do things for social good. The first half of our conversation focuses on Zach's time at Wizards and also includes some commentary on how he feels magic has been going in 2019. The second half of the conversation covers Zach's current role as the COO of the Future Project and also talks about some of the interesting intersections between policy, game design, and other things that Zach is very passionate about. Let's start off with a few announcements and shoutouts. Humans and Magic is sponsored by ChannelFireball.com. Channel Fireball is the place to go for all of your magic products and singles. Theros Beyond Death is on the horizon, and there's no better place to pre-order and get your products than at ChannelFireball.com. Humans and Magic is also sponsored by Cardboard Live. Cardboard Live takes magic coverage and streaming to the next level with a series of interactive extensions that you can use and view to better enjoy competitive magic. To get started with Cardboard Live as a streamer, just reach out to james at cardboard.live and we'll hook you up. The music in this episode has been brought to you by Kupla. That's K-U-P-L-A. Go check out Kupla on SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever music is found. Last but not least, if you have not had the chance to do so, I strongly recommend that you check out my latest book, Humans and Magic, Interviews with the Game's Greatest Minds. It's a compilation of the best interviews that I've conducted for this podcast in text format. And if you're interested in learning more, please go to humansandmagic.com where you can join my mailing list and be entered into a draw to win a free copy of the book. And just by entering the mailing list, you will also be able to preview three complete chapters from the book, totally free. So hop on down to humansandmagic.com and find out more about my passion project. Thank you. All right, that's it for all the introductions. Now it's time for Humans and Magic with Zach Hill. I am here with 
the wonderful Zach Hill. Zach, how are you? You can call me Mr. Wonderful. I'm doing fantastic. So good to talk to you. It's my pleasure. Whereabouts are you located today physically? I'm phys- <laughs> in Cartesian space. I'm in uh, the financial district of New York in Manhattan. I've lived here for about the last eight years. I'm getting close to being able to call myself a New Yorker. And I'm one of those obnoxious people that's kind of obsessed with it, even though I'm not from here. So yeah, New York City, United States of America. Well, eight years is a long time. So you have... I, th- I would think a rightful claim to be a New Yorker, right? Or is New Yorker one of those things where you have to be born in New York to be? I- I'm not quite sure because I've only been to New York a few times. See, what everyone tells me is that it's the 10-year mark. But I feel like, you know, the 2010s were a lot. So it's like we've milked 10 years out of these eight years. So to me, that counts. I'm going to start running around with like, you know, a Yankees hat and uh, branding myself as somebody that really knows finally how to navigate the subway systems on weekends. So you are a Yankees fan for the record, right? (laughs) I'm like the most, I'm the world's most convenient opt-in Yankees fan. I think baseball is the sport I know the least about, but it's the sport that I've got a lot of friends that are randomly adjacent to. So it's like, uh, it's it, it's convenient opt-in fandom. It's basically the worst kind of fandom, but I'm going to lean into that. I'm on a passion about it. I saw that you recently played at SCG Con, and it was the 10K Cube Draft. In fact, I saw you on the coverage, and that really piqued my interest. Can you tell me about a little bit about why you decided to go play some Magic that weekend and, and then how it went for you? Yeah, it was it was my most successful uh, year of magic in the last ten years, I guess. So I've got to I've got to revel in it while I can. No, but I've been cube drafts the only format that I've been playing, I guess, regularly and seriously since I went to Wizards like a decade ago. It was a format that you know Tom Lapelli, amongst many other people, was my colleague at Wizards, really helped popularize. Sam Black was one of the OG cube people. And so it's always been my favorite way to play Magic. I like having the opportunity to have all the pieces of the game interconnect, you know, not in kind of the clean developed lines of a format. As a developer, it's also a really useful format because it's one of the only ways where you can truly see how your power level of cards that you've developed recently interacts with the corpus of all the cards that have come before. So it's both useful and fun. So when Star City said, oh, we're going to be interested in supporting this format at the highest level, I figured that that was something that I wanted to show my support for. So I actually went to SCG Con purely to play in the cube tournaments, practice for the event a little bit with my good friend and my teammate from New York City, Ryan Sachs, and the event ended up going really well. Um, I, I made the top eight of my first qualifier, won the second qualifier, and uh, got to chat about the format the entire weekend with John Brostoff, who I had the great fortune of meeting this past uh, this past weekend, and he ultimately took me down in the top four. So it was a not only really fun tournament, but it was it felt good to actually be you know playing semi competitively again and know that I still got it at least a little bit of it and it's the way I'd recommend playing magic to anybody that's never been able to try it before because especially for those of us who have been around a while it's a way to experience kind of the totality of what magic has to offer oh for sure you're basically saying that when you were working within wizards that was a favorite pastime that was a very popular format was it 
One of the things that's hard to believe and it's hard for me to believe in retrospect is that you could spend all your time playing magic all week. And then on the weekends when you needed something to do, you'd like go and play magic with your friends. But that's basically exactly what happened, whether it was at Cafe Mox, whether it was at like Justin Treadway's house or all these different places. A lot of the Wizards people had cubes and it was just like roll in at noon and uh, barbecue and play some more cube draft. Dwayne St. Arnold, there's all these different people. Actually, a group of my friends from Seattle still has an annual cube event every year we call the Smart and Thin Invitational. Uh, and we prepare for it for almost like a year. There's like five constructed formats, but there's also like two or three cube drafts. So it's a community that have been together and been active and been doing this and have been uh, getting obsessively more and more fanboys of Bud Light Lime, which <laughs> I won't go into because it's kind of embarrassing, but uh, it's become a whole thing. But yeah, so anyway, we've kept that cube community live for the better part of a decade now. Holy smokes. That sounds like some high-level challenging competition right because it's all these formats like cube that you can't just you got to have lots of practice probably years and years of practice and who who designs the cubes is it do you guys use some kind of established list or is it sort of a group effort so there's two people that have kind of taken on the responsibility of being the tournament organizers their names are uh, david Bedall and steven berkeley two really good friends of mine uh, both have played on the pro tour a couple of times steven for for a good long while actually and they're kind of the ringmasters of the event so they decide what the cubes are going to look like what's going to be in them what the designs are whether it's powered or unpowered and they also spend a bunch of time just inventing these absurd formats that have never been played before because the conceit of the tournament is that you can't net deck anything so i mean we spend it's like embarrassing how much time we'll spend breaking these formats they usually release the formats in january and we've got from january to may to design our decks for each of these formats because we essentially have to derive them from scratch so some of us are more competitive than others uh, i've made the finals of this event three times i won once uh, so yeah we we take it pretty seriously so give me an example of that. If it's something that's ex exclusive to these tournaments, we're not talking about creating cards just for this format, but some kind of rules or boundaries that's different from, say, standard or modern or pioneer. That's exactly right. So let me give you an example of some of the formats. One was called Perfect Pool. And the idea is you had to build your deck out of uh, three booster packs but you got to determine exactly what was in those booster packs, right? So 10 commons, three uncommons, and a rare uh, from whatever mix of formats that you wanted to choose. So the idea was you'd get to open up a booster as if you could magically demonic tutor for every card in the pack. So we ended up having formats that were like the Dampen Thought deck from Champions of Kamigawa. I built like a Lorwyn Fairies Merfolk deck. Uh, we had several people play like, a, a, you know, almost like a Bogles style deck with some of the boosters that are really powered up. So it's stuff like that that you just never really think of before. Um, we've done rotisserie drafts. We've done set sealed, which is basically we draft sets of magic cards and build constructed decks from the sets that we've drafted. Um, we've done one rep max, which is basically like a rotisserie draft of different kinds. Um, we've done very, very strange commander formats. 
uh, where, where you can have like any card type be your commander. Uh, one of my favorite formats we did was uh, player haters ball where everything was legal, but we went through and just banned like 120 cards, including just stuff that we know each other likes to play to like troll each other. So yeah, we, we've had very crazy oh, wow. uh, formats over the years. One of them, we went through all decks that have top aided a pro tour uh, we skipped like the first two years of the Pro Tour, uh, and we basically had to have our opponent play the deck of our choosing that had top aided a Pro Tour. Uh, turns out there are some pretty questionable lists that have nevertheless uh, <laughs> seen play at the highest level. And right. of course, my teammates were trolling me by giving me my own team's decks. So it's it's as we say at the Smartened Invitational, it's not just about having fun. It's about making sure your opponents are not having fun. So we we really lean into our mutual generosity for each other. Oh, that sounds amazing. Just all these kind of levels of fun and unfun for your opponent and a level of trolling as well, which is really remarkable. I love it. As Kendrick would say, there are levels to it. Oh, yeah. Every year we just go all out. You know, the way you describe this Invitational, it makes me wish that this was an actual pro tour or mythic championship or players tour, I guess they're calling it now, event, where that seems to be a real skill testing event, right? Where your inside baseball knowledge of magic actually comes into play as opposed to just playing the latest popular deck this week on standard. So to me, this would be like the ultimate Olympics for magic where you have to be so well-rounded it's almost not like a tournament it maybe it's more like a test to get into play design it's, or wizards but it really is kind of like that yeah and, and i well a, of course i agree with you because i tend to do well at the event so yeah i think it's very skill testing only brilliant people can play it only brilliant no, but people it, yes but you have fun <laughs> <laughs> even if you're not brilliant anyways I digress. right exactly but, but that is one of the reasons that i appreciated that star city was supporting cube at the highest level because i do think it rewards kind of a, a fundamental theoretical understanding of magic and people that have been able to play it for a long time and then yeah these these kind of weird formats i think one of the things that we always uh, encountered as a developer was you can develop the more a format's kind of like a sandbox format the more directly you can develop it so standard you know it's only two years worth of sets it's very curated you don't have to compete with all of the rest of magic um, and you can develop those sets pretty deliberately and have a fairly high degree of confidence in what the play pattern is. As you open up more and more formats and more and more legalities, it's just not possible to control for all the variance and variation. And so I do think that you see kind of, you know, way more emergent phenomenon, but also um, unintended consequences more frequently. Uh, one of the things I think that's probably got to be hard about the developers that are working now is, you know, when I was designing magic, the game had been out for like 15 years, I guess 15, 16 years. And there weren't as many cards that had been put out. So it was much less of a burden to release stuff that had to compete against like the entire set of cards that had been printed to that point. Now, you know, th there's almost twice as many uh, just cards released into the environment. And so any given sandbox format 
that you design is less of a percentage of the whole of all magic experiences. And so I do think it's good to be able to play in environments every once in a while where the entire uh, lineage of magic's history is at play. And you can see the fingerprints kind of of how the game's evolved over the years, for better and for worse. Yeah, for sure. This is a excellent top of mind thing for me because I would love to ask you about your thoughts on 2019 for Magic, how play design has performed this year. I know the common narrative is just to say that mistakes were made. Right. You've got to believe, or I've got to believe, that there's much more to this. And is it what you just said about the the size of the sets or the frequency of the releases? What is it? Or is it a confluence of other factors? I think there's a lot that's been going on. So I mean, I mean, the first thing is I have a ton of respect for everybody at Wizards that's working right now. And I think that, you know, we all always like to say, oh, here's the nine things we would have done differently. Um, but, you know, at, at the same time, you know, I can act like, oh, here's the kinds of decisions I made. But, you know, I printed Geist to St. Traff and Snapcaster Mage. So it's not like I, <laughs> I don't know anything about uh, printing cards that are a little too powerful for standard. Excellent cube cards, by the way. But I digress. I, that, that's exactly right. Yeah, they, they work out in a variety of formats. I mean, and, you know, and I've been in meetings where we, you know, I was sitting there passionately advocating that, like, Gitaxian probe is fine. So, <laughs> you know, I, I, I say all of this within the context of developing magic sets is hard, but I do think there's kind of a thesis um, that I tended to advocate for a sort of mid-range style play where cards can interact with one another and combat kind of happens and, and, and this, that, and the other thing. And I definitely think that the power level of recent sets not only has been uh, deliberately targeted in a way that I think makes it hard to hit within your window, I do think that the the folks at Wizards kind of did realize, especially with the launch of a set like Ixalan, that uh, you know th there's just fewer and fewer as more and more cards get released and players have played for a longer and longer period of time there's fewer and fewer people who are comfortable just operating purely within the sandbox that is standard. And so I think that introduces the challenge of how do you release new cards that can continue to be relevant across all styles of play? Um, I think one of the challenges there is you certainly can't just keep pushing the power level of cards to try and force them into older format because that's going to be unsustainable. I think the second thing is that the more you deliberately try to target power level, the more fragile your format is because the more small differences in expectation can bust the equilibrium that you play tested for. I think that a card like Oko is obviously an example of that, but I think something like Once Upon a Time is even more challenging to develop for because you're not testing the power or the acumen of a given card, you're testing a certain amount of variance minimization that especially in concert with the London Mulligan can't be adapted for in a metagame because what you're fighting against is a fundamental limit of magic, which is how variant it is, right? And that's just kind of a coefficient that affects the play pattern of the set of all games and all metagames and all decks. Um, and that's something that I think is really, really difficult to intuit. And, you know, once there's a critical amount of, um, you know, essentially skill determinant of a given match, it makes it really, really hard for the vast majority of players to break into an environment 
uh, populated by the set of decks that are able to exploit that. Um, you know, we can go all the way back to the Call Blade era, where a lot of players, especially skilled players, really liked the interplay of a given matchup. But the deck was so good at minimizing variance due to access to cards like Preordain that uh, there was really not a ceiling on how frequently the deck was able to perform and do its thing. And that pushes not only other options, but other players out of the metagame. So I think that, you know, there's a lot of decisions about the top line power level that I think definitely, um, you know, overshot the target. I mean, there was that stat of, you know, in whatever legacy tournament was recently, 29 out of the 74 cards that were played in the top 64 uh, you know, were made in 2019. I think I probably got that stat wrong, but it's ballpark, right? You know, that's not something you can keep up as you're developing magic cards because, you know, without power creeping, you can't kind of push the corpus of all other decisions out of the environment. Um, but I do think that there is an obligation to try and place cards more powerfully for older formats. I think a set that did this really well was Return to Ravnica, where you had, you know, cards like Abrupt Decay and and, and other stuff like that um, that was able to be sort of uh, relevant in standard, but disproportionately high leverage in older formats due to the nature of the kinds of effects you were solving for. Um, and it's a tricky, uh, it's a tricky balance, you know, especially when you're having to sort of shift a design regime and shift uh, a management sort of operating system at the same time. Um, so, you know, I, I, I've tried, I try to be under assertive about uh, the, it, it's just easy to be an armchair quarterback. Right. Um, and I'm sympathetic to the challenge uh, that they've got to solve for, but all things being said, I mean, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's a ton of cards. I think that I, I just, you've got to have guardrails in place to not print. Right? So, you know, something like three of three times in the last two years, we've had uh, arguably most powerful or most powerful card in the format being a mana accelerating, repeatable mind's desire effect, right? With Etherworks, Marvel, Golos, and Urza. And that's just probably not the kind of effect that you want to push. Right. Um, there's other things like in Throne of Eldraine, like let's get off Oko for a second. We all make mistakes. You're putting two, three mana blue planeswalkers in the same set. You're giving yourself a very, very difficult development challenge to try and get right. So I think that agnostic of some of the specific design decisions, I think that the last year, I, I, I believe and hope, has helped play design understand what kind of guardrails you need to put up to make sure that your development obligations are something that is going to actually be possible for you to field. Because um, past a certain point, you're just not going to be able to get everything right. Yes. I think at some point, it becomes possible to just create those guardrails and have a real process for that. Like something can just be flagged as are we sure about this let's have a second review or third review if it has the following criteria x y and z right so that's right that's i think that's certainly doable i do wonder and maybe this is also a little bit too inside baseball but i do wonder if it's because of some type of hubris or being too close to it because i know that when we're building software products or 
anything really like sometimes you're too close to your product you're too close you need a new fresh side of fresh pair of eyes to look at it i wonder also if it's because of some kind of i think hubris might be too strong a word but maybe some kind of overconfidence or we know what's going on we know better than you that also results in there not being guardrails and more about intuition I could definitely, you know, it's it's hard for me to to know what the exact dynamics are. I mean, I, definitely the kind of stuff that you mentioned has been the kind of thing that I think we've all seen in, in many of our companies, many of our organizations be something that's dangerous. So I think you're flagging like a real, um, a, a real potential issue. I think that I also think about the nature of the the work and how it plans out. And there's a couple other things too. The first is just information management. It's hard, especially of like conceptual design criteria. And I know based on some of the articles that have been published recently, there was like a migration away from our old wiki system that we used to use. And there was a lot of thought there about just like hard constraints, guardrails, philosophy, theses, design criteria, you know, explications of things like, I think a successful standard format looks like this and this for this and this reason. And there was just a lot of thought about the overall um, experience design that we were trying to solve for as game designers. And, you know, I wonder if the migration away from the formalization of some of that thought process has made it uh, harder to actually have a target for what to solve for in the first place, or, or at least created different targets that may or may not be informed by that kind of lineage of reasoning. Then again, I don't really know. I don't know what has and has not been migrated, but I know in some of my companies now, uh, as we work on uh, complex design challenges, one of the things that gets in the way most frequently is the information management of the communication flow, but also the concept grammar that one design team really needs to transfer to another design team so that a lot of the thought processes don't get lost. Um, that's one thing. I think the second thing is, it's very different to kind of have playtesting data or have uh, feedback data and kind of know what the issue is or know what you need to solve for. It's another thing entirely, especially in like an artistic medium, like experience design or like game design, to apply that aesthetically and comprehensively to your actual solution. Right. In other words, there's an element of finesse there and there's an element of taste and there's an element of talent and there's an element of experience. But even if you've isolated exactly what you're trying to do, the look and feel and kind of muscle memory it takes to execute upon that successfully, I think is just very variant across individuals and across teams. And so you're going to have different teams solving for that in different ways with different levels of acumen. And it's something that I think is hard to regularize across a very large variety of set releases. You know, one of the things that is easy to forget is that the same team doesn't work on each set release, right? And oftentimes it's very different team members, it's very different leads, it's very different uh, facilitative processes. I think a lot of the, the great sets of the era that I was working on magic came from really powerful collaborations with like Mark Rosewater and Eric Lauer on large sets that had um, pretty specific design criteria attached to them. And that's how you got stuff uh, like Innistrad, for example. And, you know, it's you're just not going to always be able to replicate that sauce in that same combination in that same form. Um, you know, if, if you did, you'd be releasing one magic set a year. So I do think that there's um, 
a, a confluence of variables that have gone into why we've seen um, the sets work out the way they've been. Uh, again, I think it definitely, if, I, if it were my design regime, I'd be doing a fair bit of things differently with a different set of priorities. But I also understand that uh, anytime you're trying to do something new, it's super easy to, in retrospect, see everything that went differently from the way that you expected to and act like, oh, this is all obvious. Um, but very few things are obvious until they're out in the wild. So I, I have a lot of sympathy for that. Yeah. Let me ask you a very layperson question. And yeah. this is just to try and really get into it. Because you're using language such as solving for x and y so in your view and i'm not trying to assume that this is an objective truth or anything but just by the way you described it what is wizards play design trying to solve for is it something high level like this needs to be fun this format needs to be fun this set needs to be fun or is it something else i just want you to break that down a little bit absolutely so i know the current regime is trying to solve for like Fire. Uh, I forget what the acronym stands for, but that information is on the internet somewhere. But it's it's like fun, but it's also like exciting, but it's also replayable. Um, you know, you, yeah. you in other words, if an experience is fun, you've got to then ask yourself, well, who is it fun for? Why is it fun? Why does it work that way? What is the periodicity at which it's fun? So there's a lot of formats. For example, I think the Star City Players Cube is a good example of this. That's like really fun the first five times you played it but it ceases uh to be as engaging after that because you kind of crack the nut and you kind of solve it right um but a lot of the time you've got to uh create a bunch of technical knobs to develop formats where that doesn't really happen which can sometimes lower the visceral excitement level of a lot of what the format's about right so you know a card like spell snare may be really important for an environment, but it's not going to be an exciting thing to open in your pack for the vast majority of players. So there's always going to be a balance between the kind of visceral lived experience you have when you jump into something and the ability to kind of mediate that experience over the long term. There's also uh, dimensions of specific formats that you're really trying to convey a specific experience. So a Shadows over Innistrad, you know, there is this discovery experience of mystery, of not totally knowing what's going on, a feeling kind of a brooding sense of unease, and you want to reflect that in the play pattern. Conversely, something like Theros was um, very structured against uh, the traditional kind of progression of the archetypal myth uh, with its origins in Greek mythology, actually, you know, Sumerian mythology and stuff like that before then. And so you had a lot of cards that kind of sent you on quests, either implicitly or explicitly. And your payoff there was usually quite rewarding, right? And you saw kind of a pace of evolution across the environment you know you're you're heroically kind of leveling up your wing steed rider you've got the ordeals where there's literally three acts right you play it to get around a blocker then they try to set up their defense and so you try to get the second hit and uh, that usually makes your creature big enough that by the third hit you get a payoff um, you know you're not going to be solving for those sets of design objectives with a set like Ixalan, which uh, isn't trying to really convey that experience at all, right? So there's the experiences you're trying to solve for within magic. Then there's an experience you're trying to solve for within a given set. 
And I think finally, there's the experience you're trying to solve for within a given format. And the temptation is not always to be explicit about these things, but standard should feel very different from modern, which should feel very different from legacy, which should feel very different from pioneer, uh, which should definitely feel very different from commander, right? And I think you've got to look at it almost like an art critic would look at a piece of media and say, given the inputs that can go into this, given the grammar and vocabulary and properties of this medium, what experiences can we optimize for, right? So the same way that uh, oil painting is going to optimize from different things than a piece of cinema is going to optimize from different things from a podcast because you're using, you know, paint in one hand, film in another, and audio in the third. The experience that you can create with cards like Brainstorm, Wasteland, and Force of Will is very different from the experience that you can create with cards like Bone Crusher Giant and uh, Questing Beast. So I think that your, um, your paint, essentially, should inform your definition of what a successful canvas can become. And you get into real trouble when you think that you're trying to make, you know, a marble statue, but your only material available is clay, right? Uh, Because your options are either to make a shitty statue or to insist that your clay function like marble. Uh, And that often leads to problems, as we've seen with some, you know, of of the recent printings and cards and standard. And to a layperson like me, it just seems almost impossible because there are so many different demographics. First of all, within a player base, even people in a room, you have the, yeah, I think these are try tested and true um, profiles. You have like the Spike, the the Timmy, the Johnny, etc. But then you also have people who are playing different formats and are looking for different things out of Magic, competitive versus kitchen table. So doesn't it almost beg the question, like how do you, do that or is this does play design just basically say with this set we're trying to hit like these one or two things out of the park and then the other things we'll just we'll just not worry about it that's always been something that's hard because when i look at anything i'm obviously only looking at from my point of view which is (laughs) my point of view is like i love eternal formats and i'm a spike now obviously i have to have enough empathy for other people to be okay, there are other people who are entirely not like me, who, you know, who enjoys playing Commander for fun, multiplayer. That's right. not something I do at all. But how, how does one balance that? Well, I think that there, there's several ways. So you've got a bunch of tools at your disposal to make that happen. So the first thing you have is the, it used to be design development uh, and, and balance. Now I think it's uh, set design, play design, and uh, concept design or experience design, but it, it, which is the earliest stage thing. But in other words, you've got teams that are associated with doing things at different levels of rev- resolution. So you normally start with kind of what the top line experience and mechanics are going to be. Then you kind of move forward into, okay, well, this is what the set's architecture is going to look like. This is what the limited environment is going to look like. This is what it's going to kind of be about. And then you've got the crafting of like the specific chest pieces that operate within those contexts and function the way they do both, you know, in the sandbox and and in a broader format. So you've got different teams solving for kind of different layers of the need. And I think that really helps because you compose those teams with different psychographic profiles. The second thing is that, you know, the nice thing about a set is that you've got, you know, on the order of 250 cards, 
to work with, not all of which have to solve for all different player needs. You want the set as an experience to kind of represent something that can be uh, rewarding to the vast majority of the distribution of your spectrum. The same way that, you know, when you make an Avengers movie, you've got to be able to appease folks that are just going to see a summer blockbuster, but you want to have some Easter eggs in there for your Captain America stands, right? So similarly, you want to be able to deliver an experience at multiple levels, and that's why some cards are going to be for some people and other cards are going to be for other people. And you want to proportion those out, ideally, uh, as a function of the rough percentage of the demographic distribution of those player bases. Um Cards that can appeal to multiple stakeholders are obviously really great. Um, but that's also kind of a scarce resource, so you've got to make sure not to overdo it. And then finally, I think one of the reasons that you're seeing a move away from the traditional um, you know, solo randomized booster pack into more tailored offerings for specific players is that that actually allows you to excuse me, target that distribution a little bit more directly, right? So you can actually just make products for specific psychographics or archetypes a little bit more deliberately than you have to rely on when you're getting a, a randomized product. And you can now actually optimize that for a draft experience. You can optimize for a collectible experience. So I think it's a hard problem for sure. I think it's uh, you're seeing a greater exploration of all the different um, devices that can be used to make that problem a little bit easier. Um, and also, I think that uh, at the end of the day, it is sort of uh, subjective. One of the things that I believe this was Matt Place, it was either Matt Place or Pat Sullivan and I used to joke about, is that you know the Magic plant fan base is very passionate. And uh, when we joke about the kind of comments that we'd get, we would say, ah, oh, you know, I've thought about this for literally dozens of hours, right? Which <laughs> so sounds like a lot, but it forgets that, you know, a lot of folks have a full-time job. Yeah. Somebody out there has, has done that, you know, 10 times the amount that you have, probably someone within Wizards, right? <laughs> that's exactly right. And that doesn't mean they get everything correct. It just means that, you know, I think most of us feel like because we're passionate about the game and think about it a lot, we've probably thought about it at the same order of magnitude that folks whose job it is to do it every day have. And that's just descriptively not true, right? Unless we've been <laughs> thinking about it for between, you know, nine and 12 hours a day, five to seven days a week, uh, you know, and developing the competency around that. So I think it's very much a hard problem. It's very much a problem that you sometimes get wrong, but I think there are a lot of structures that exist in order to try and hit those different needs uh, in a reliable and systemic way. That makes sense. And I think something you, you just mentioned really resonated with me because you said a set may have 250 cards and it's not like every card has to be for that demographic or for that objective, right? Which is totally That's true right. because if I look at Eternal Formats, this new set might have two cards that, that are remotely even playable for Cube or for Eternal and that's totally fine. And I think that in itself is in a way kind of the genius of collectible card games like Magic. It doesn't have to be everything for everybody all the time. I think that's something that we often forget as fans of the game because we have this sort of, you can call it cherry picking. You can also call right. it kind of a strange survivorship bias where it's like, you're of course you're going to talk about the top five cards that are overly powerful and broken because you're not talking about the other 245 that are perfectly fine. And, and, and actually, if you look at it purely objectively, 
design has probably done its job because, you know, it has to push the power level on certain things. And on other things, it's perfectly fine. We don't talk about those things because they're fine, right? Totally. I mean, and, and, and I, again, I think there's plenty of legitimate criticisms that plenty of folks can levy. Uh, but I, I think it's good, as you point out, um, to to reflect the kind of distribution of possible things, right? So let's say it wasn't there were just two good cards in Eternal. Let's say every set had 75 good cards for Eternal. Well, that would make me mad because all of the Jace the Mind Sculptors and Force of Wills and Oaths of Druids and random stuff that I picked up now doesn't matter because the set invalidated that. And then ostensibly the next set would invalidate that, right? So clearly 75 is not the optimal distribution. Um, but clearly probably one is not the optimal distribution. So then like, what is the optimal distribution? Right. And I don't think anybody knows the answer. I mean, we'd like it all to be, Oh, well each set gets, you know, 12 new cards for 10 existing archetypes and two new archetypes. But it's just hard to sustain that with the amount of real estate that you have. And it's hard to design that correctly. Even if you do all of that right, then players are going to complain, oh, well, stop engineering my format so deliberately. So it's one of those things where it's like every single choice is going to involve trade-offs and drawbacks. And it's a continuous process to get what the ideal ratio of that is. And it's a process that itself has a feedback loop which is the more cards you release that changes the dynamics of what the optimal uh, number of swings to take at the kinds of different cards for different profiles is because you're competing against a larger and larger and larger total set of available cards. So it's a system that, in other words, doesn't really have an equilibrium, even if you were able to solve for it. And I think the, the, the thing to internalize is exactly what you were saying, which is, not every single card is going to be for me. And a lot of the things that the cards are for are play patterns that I don't even enjoy, right? Like I, to this day, do not understand why Commander is or could be fun. I mean, it's not even that I just don't like it. It's that I would rather be doing anything else than playing a game <laughs> of Commander. <laughs> you know, it's like I, it's I'm going to have to send this recording reading. to my friend because I feel exactly the same way. And my one of oh, my yeah. friends is uh, always trying to get me into Commander, and I had to explain to him. Well, and and look, like we can all rationalize, like, oh, what well, creates repeat play patterns that don't allow you to rely, but but all of that's going to be ultimately subjective in terms of how yeah. much we care about these things. I mean, the same way that I'm not trying to imply that you or I have like the absolute truth or facts. Right. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> that would be very, very bad. That's right. <laughs> there have been criticisms leveled at you while you were at wizards. Can you describe for me what they were and how you feel about them today? That's right. So I think there's kind of two dimensions to some of these kind of criticisms. I think the first are the kinds of criticisms that come about because Magic just, you know, it has millions and millions and millions and millions of players. And there's always going to be decisions that you make that aren't able to please everybody. And, um, you know, folks are not only entitled to voice their opinion, but I think it's healthy and good that we get that kind of feedback from players about what everybody wants. And then there's, I think, the the kinds of criticisms that are more about, like, you know, unforced errors. You know, the first are just things that folks don't like. And I think the second things are uh, things that we, you know, did wrong or that I did wrong and that, uh, you know, I would have done differently in retrospect. Um, in general, I think... 
my design philosophy that was echoed by a lot of folks uh, in the building at the time that I stand by was a very deliberate attempt to return to magic about creature combat and the battlefield and kind of turns three through seven of the game. And that was a very intentional decision because, you know, creature combat is one of the most uh, interactive and defining elements of magic. Historically, tournament magic prior to that, uh, prior to this phase, really was not very centered on combat and battlefield interaction. Um, you know, you have a lot of decks that are built around either, you know, Magnavore style decks around very powerful spells and raw resource advantage, um, or sort of stack based and zone advantage that were these controller combo style decks that really ended the game in a series of critical turns that were all about the positioning and interplay of spells on the stack. And my thesis was very much that, you know, magic has a battlefield for a reason and magic has combat for a reason. And if magic were the best game that it could be, uh, and that weren't actually very important, then we'd make some sort of game that didn't have those rules. Um, but the game that was succeeding wasn't that. It was a game with a battlefield and with creatures. And it was a very big mistake for the cards that were most viscerally appealing and the kinds of cards that were seeing the most play and generating the most excitement at casual play tables, things like big creatures and iconic uh, things like, you know, angels, dragons, vampires, stuff like that. It's a mistake for those not to also be the exciting, powerful kinds of cards that appeal in tournament play. And this was a very deliberate but very distinct shift in design philosophy from the previous iterations of specifically the standard format. And any time that you've got change and any time that you're changing a game that folks have come to love over years and over decades, I think you're going to get some pushback for that. But I think that what we saw with the the sales of Magic, you know, which went from massively declining um, pretty much in a, in a linear uh, way from Mirrodin all the way up to Shards of Alara with a blip for Ravnica, was really reset around the time that Magic 2010 came out with the focus on, um, you know, cards like Bane Slayer Angel. Um, bringing Lightning Bolt back to the format, but also really centering a kind of very mid-range style play pattern. You know, for the first time ever, the big super villain at that point in time was Jund, which was just a, a really good mid-range deck on Wraith. That had never happened before. So that was kind of a deliberate design decision that I think was very important for making Magic a lot more accessible, bringing a lot of players back to the game. But even for experienced players, making sure that the kinds of things that most people find fun were the kinds of things that were rewarded. Uh, but I think that kind of shift uh, w was, was very noticeable, and I think a lot of players that preferred the style of play that had been historically rewarded uh, really um, were, were kind of shocked by that and had a lot of criticisms to muster. Now, did you think that those players who were vocal, were they the vocal minority or were they were they part of the majority? Just trying to understand the scope of how it was received, because I, I'm just going to say from my vantage point, it seemed like that's what a lot of people talked about, but that's the internet. So there's probably a, a majority that is silent that maybe didn't feel like the game was, that, that actually felt the game was going in a good direction. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's it's not even remotely close. That was the minor, minority. I mean, if that wasn't right, the game wouldn't have grown like it did. I mean, I think that 
you know, when I had started uh, Magic, and I don't remember these numbers exactly, but I think that they had uh, fallen to something like eight or nine million players. By the time I ended, we had, you know, 14 million. And I think it's it's up to considerably more than that now, piggybacking on the same dimension. Um, so, so it, you know, and, and turn, I mean, everything was up. Tournament attendance was up. Casual attendance was up. Everything that you could possibly be measuring in terms of bringing people back into the game was up by a lot. Uh, so, so, you know, and any time that stuff like this comes up, folks are not going to be sending in, you know, announcing proudly, uh, that they love exactly what's going on. Um, not because people are negative, but because, I mean, folks that are happy are playing the game, right? You know, it's, if you like something, you're just kind of going and you're doing that, right? So I I think that it, it, you know, always, um, the, it's always hard to gauge, the volume of people that think something uh, as a function of the volume of people that are talking about or criticizing something. I think we see that in a lot of domains outside of game design as well. Um, But I do think that it's important for folks to be able to voice their opinions. And I think that I feel really good that, you know, for, for the privilege of being able to work on something that so many people feel passionate about. And I do think that um, there's no reason to believe that just something, because something is directionally correct, that it's executed in the best possible way or that I didn't make errors or that we couldn't have done it differently and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very confident that the minority was a vocal minority and I'm very confident that the overall shift in direction uh, was successful, not just the emphasis in constructed, but the emphasis of new world order in limited, uh, dramatically increasing or dramatically decreasing the battlefield complexity of limited environments while increasing uh, the strategic depth of uh, both the draft and the play experience. I think those were both very successful initiatives, but they were initiatives that were very dramatically different from the game that millions of people had come to know and love. Got it. So how, how would you qualify the criticisms exactly? Was it the, the fact that the game was going towards this direction that you guys deliberately set out to create? I think a lot of the criticism was voiced as, oh, you're dumbing down the game, especially because a lot of our messaging was uh, about accessibility and about uh, access to new and returning players. Now, what's interesting is if you look at the Pro Tour results, from this period, they were as much or more skill intensive than any other phase of Magic's history. I mean, you had so many of the game's all-time great players performing at unprecedented levels of success. Uh, so so the, the skill intensiveness of the game was preserved, if not increased. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of ways of framing that debate, and there were some blips here and there. I mean, I think that Addison Restored was not a particularly good or particularly skill-intensive draft format, for example. But the idea that the game is being kind of dumbed down just doesn't bear out with the evidence. But I think that a lot of the things like the elimination of damage on the stack, for example, or um, the the dramatic reduction in text on the average card made a certain kind of player that uh, Pat Sullivan and I like to call bad spikes, um, which is you know <laughs> a, a bit of a pejorative term. But I love that. Um, you, you know there are folks that I think um, like to feel as though they are skilled at the game 
because they've mastered a small set of behaviors that are not intuitive to the average player. So it's kind of a very demonstrable way of playing the game at a little bit higher of a level. Yeah, than... it's, a, it's a kind of a variation of rules lawyering, correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think some of those things have aged quite well because I still remember, like I think the other day my friends and I were talking about, remember how Mog Fanatic could do that extra one damage because the damage is on the stack and it actually doesn't really matter now if you look back at it, but I remember at the time, at least online, there was a huge, huge uproar over that. Yeah, well, I, and, and exactly. And I think the, the same thing about mana burn, which just doesn't matter at all. I mean, I think that one of the value propositions of playing Magic is the feeling that you win against your opponent and in winning you're also showcasing that you're smarter than your opponent. Now, I don't think that's true, but I think that's the value that a lot of players perceive uh, as getting from playing Magic. And so you're sorting for a lot of folks that like the feeling of being A, really passionate about something, and B, feeling that that passion is a function of their intellectual superiority and their ability to be correct when other people aren't. As a result of that, I think that you have a kind of abnormal amount of application of that attitude toward the game designers um, and toward the folks that make the game saying, okay, well, I think this way and I've experienced this way and therefore I believe that I know more about this experience than these other people. And so when they're doing something I disagree with, I view that as sort of an affront to my intelligence and preference, and I believe that everything's going to go wrong. Um, one of the ways that you see that is the attitudes that players often take to highly successful pro players who either go inside to design and develop the game or who get on commentary. Um, you know, when Louis Scott Vargas or someone like Paul Chion, who for a while was uh, in talks to be one of the, you know, perhaps the best active player in the mid 2000s, suddenly they get on Twitch and they start commentating on games and, and every player has a litany of reasons why they're dumb, they're missing out, they don't understand. The, the you know, proverbial axe to grind, as it were. The proverbial, exactly. And, it, and it's not just a criticism of what they're saying. It's a total inversion of the previous attitude toward these players as the kind of incontrovertible best in the game. Because when someone's asserting something that doesn't comport with the intuition of a skilled but not top-tier player, it's natural for that player, I think, to internalize that as you know, a criticism of their lack of skill at a game that they've invested a tremendous amount of time and energy into. And so I think it's natural to approach that defensively. And I think it's natural to criticize the decisions of people whose parameters and whose solution vectors are different from your preferences. And I think as game designers, one of the things we have to do is not take that criticism as, you know, not take it personally and not view it as a criticism of us, but view it as a function of how invested players are in the game, how much they've trusted us with you know, hundreds, if not thousands of hours and hundreds, if not thousands of dollars, um, and, and to be responsible stewards of that. Um, I think any time that large amounts of players are sensitive to something, even if we as designers disagree with those players, it's a sign that you know they, they want to make sure that we've earned our right to be the decision makers for something that's had an appreciable impact on their lives. And I think that, um, 
I take that really seriously, even if a lot of the times I wound up disagreeing with a vocal minority of players. Now, was it hard for you guys internally to also think in that way? Because I'm just trying to think what was going on behind the scenes. Was there resistance to things being done in this way, even though you guys knew you were trying to, in good faith, trying to improve the popularity of Magic and trying to make the game more accessible, etc.? Was there internal resistance with regards to this type of idea? Yeah, well, I think the good thing about coming into Magic at this era was everybody knew something big need to change. I mean, you know, right before I came in-house at Pro Tour Kuala Lumpur, I think in 2008, I believe was the year, there was a players meeting that was talking very seriously about the end of the Pro Tour. I mean, Magic was not in good shape. And so I think everybody knew that internally that they needed to question their assumptions, that they needed to do something pretty dramatically different. And so I think there was a lot of open-mindedness as to the nature of what needed to be different. I also think we had a lot of very talented, very vocal people at that point. Um, You know, Mark Rosewater, Eric Lauer, who's perhaps the greatest deck designer to ever play the game. Not a lot of people know about him, but he's uh, been Magic's head developer for a long time. And he's a brilliant, brilliant mind, really incredible guy. Obviously, um, Mark Rosewater, a guy named Matt Place, who was a Pro Tour Minds champion, a very talented designer in his own right. Mike Turian, um, a Hall of Fame Magic player, was announced at that time. Dave Humphreys, Hall of Fame player. So you had a lot of opinionated, very talented people, all of whom kind of had different orientations. But it arrived at the same conclusion for what needed to take place. It wasn't a kind of climate where everybody was just agreeing with everything everybody else said. I mean, we, I certainly was known to get in, you know, screaming matches with folks <laughs> in the pit. Um, and, you know, and, and, and we... Those stories have gotten out, yes. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. So, so it wasn't a case of groupthink leading to a bad decision. I think it was a case of the hard but necessary decisions being presenced for everybody. And that allowed us to kind of disagree and commit to some of these big changes. Now, at the same time, I think there were um, a couple of errors that we made. I think that um, new Phyrexia from both a process and execution perspective was an exceptionally overpowered set. I think reprinting Mana Leak in Magic 2011 and then in Magic 2012 was a mistake because we were used to a different era's sort of frequency of core set and the norms that we had when we printed a core set every two years that turned out to be unfounded. Obviously, I uh, am well known as the guy who kind of printed Snapcaster Mage that is in addition to being an overpowered card um, and, and an invitational card, uh, you know, not a particularly rewarding play pattern. You just, And working quite well with the card you just mentioned, Mana Leak, right? I believe in one of your articles you had mentioned this. That's exactly right. You mana leak something, you just keep passing the turn, and now the first fun thing your opponent wants to do, they just know that you're going to counter it. So, you know, we definitely made some mistakes. I think that trying to keep the swords at the same level of the Mirrodin swords was a bit ambitious. Um, obviously, there were, um, you know, cards like Lingering Souls, cards like Faithless Looting um, that were pushed quite aggressively, cards like Geist of St. Traft that just didn't really have a particularly fun play pattern, even if the power level was okay overall. And then, uh, you know, the famous last second change to Primeval Titan, 
um, that it used to get basic lands, then it got any land that I think, um, you know, on the one hand, it's, it's a very healthy card to be the best card in the format, but that led to a non-interactive play pattern that I think was not, um, you know, it wasn't as though I think a lot of people had fun playing against the Valakut decks. So I think we definitely made errors and, and everything that I just talked about, I mean, it was my, you know, my fault, at least in parts, so I'm not blaming other people, but on the whole, I think that we had a set of, and, 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 you know, Jace the Mind Sculptor was designed before I got there. So I think that was a little bit before my era, but obviously that was a warping format defining card. Um, for a lot of reasons. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think that on the whole, we had a very successful, very good, uh, very fun uh, and, and risky design regime that ended up paying off, I think, very demonstrably. But obviously, um, we learned a lot of lessons and I learned a lot of lessons in that process, too. And I think the criticisms of some of those decisions as well as other stuff, like I think, um, you know, I was the lead, I was the lead on Dragon's Maze. I was a lead on Magic 2013, which I think is a really incredible set. I think Dragon's Maze, we tried to cram a little bit too many cycles in there. We had, you know, legendary cycles and fixing cycles and cycles of commons and the gates-related stuff. And it was a little bit too tightly constrained. And so I think there was a lot of, like, air in those booster packs. You know, people would routinely reach out to me on Twitter just busting packs and showing the three clue stones they open. I think Uh. that... uh, you know, we, we there were more elegant solutions than those to do there. Um, but I think from a design perspective, having a small set where uh, you're trying to trim 10 guilds into the set with multiple cycles of 10 cards at different rarities, it just doesn't kind of set you up with the developmental flexibility you need to make balanced, exciting, fun, engaging cards. And so I think there's a lot we would have done differently there in retrospect. Um, and that we saw, I think, with the the distinct execution of the third Ravnica cycle. Um, so that was one of my biggest takeaways. I think if I could have done stuff differently, I would have um, got involved a lot earlier on the design phase of DGM uh, and said, hey, let's let's try to loosen this up a little bit and not just try to make this kind of a, a tight cycle good stuff set following up the other two Ravnica blocks. And one thing that's coming across to me very clearly, too, is it seems like all these sets or cards that you were involved in, you seem to have a very photographic memory of them as if it was just yesterday. Is that, would you say that's <laughs> the case? Like, it's because when I look at the list of things you've been involved in or hands on in, it's a pretty long list, but it almost strikes me as all these things, like you, you remember very clearly what they were and exactly what the cards were. Is that, is that the case? I think so. I mean, you know, I'm a, the first step that I worked on or that I had a hand in releasing was uh, Rise of the Eldrazi. The last set that I had a hand in releasing was Cons of Tarkir. So even though I was there for just over three years, it was six years worth of magic sets. Um, we'd kind of rolled back our cycle and then the design development cycles are also pretty long as it is. Um, but I, I think something that is is hard to intuit until you've been kind of in the trenches I mean, you know, our job as game designers was to work for, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of hours on nothing other than essentially getting text into a spreadsheet. You know, I mean, the the net output of working on a set is just a spreadsheet file with art assets, flavor text assets, and card design assets in it. So sort of like writing a novel, 
Um, and it's a lot more like writing a novel than it is directing a film. You know, the whole of your obsession, attention, detail, creativity, insight, and innovation is flowing into an Excel spreadsheet with like only a few thousand words on it, you know, and that represents the output of like years of your life. So, you know, and I didn't really realize that until I was in-house kind of doing that day in and day out. So, yeah, it is weird that all this happened kind of a decade ago. And I think I still recall a lot of those decisions and a lot of those specific meetings very vividly. But it was because, you know, I was waking up, going to work, going home, playing more, thinking about it and going to sleep, thinking about nothing but, you know, whether the the cycle of uh, gatekeepers should be a two, four or a two, five, you know, for like weeks at a time. Right. And so I think that, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of shocking how vivid a lot of that seems Uh, on the one hand, it feels sort of like 20 years ago. And on the other end, it feels like yesterday. Is there anything that you might consider doing differently if you were able to get back into that role as a designer for, magic obviously age is going to be a factor because that was 10 years ago and you've obviously learned a thing or two since then but how would you think about this question yeah i think that's uh it's something i've obviously spent a lot of time obsessing over i mean i think the two most controversial things that happened during my tenure were uh were snapcaster mage and cavern of souls i think snapcaster mage should have just cost you you uh, and, and had analogous effects, it still would have been really, really good. But I think that, uh, one of the issues with the card was how easy it was to splash. And I think in general, any, the problem with invitational cards is that, uh, you're kind of guaranteeing on the front end that a card needs to be a constructed player. And that's just really not a good development process because anything that you know that you have confidence where it's going to fall uh, the set of all magic players is going to have a much wider band of variants on the high and the low for it. Right. I mean, they're just going to have iterated, you know, millions games more than you ever had. So I think that structurally you don't want to get yourself in the position to have to print cards that you know are going to be constructed staples because it makes it too easy to, to print overpowered cards. So I think I'd have changed that slightly. Uh, if not tried to redesign the entire effect as a whole. I think Cavern of Souls I totally stand by, and it's it's kind of fascinating in retrospect how big of a controversy it was. But, I mean, that's the card more than any other card, any of the set of cards combined that we printed during that time period. I got the most emails of, you know, this is going to just totally kill magic. People felt really personally attacked by that card, but I think that it was very important from the perspective of the metagame, and I think it's a very exciting, uh, powerful, unique effect that folks have come to love, you know, almost a decade later. So I think that turned out pretty well. I think that I alluded to some of the issues with Dragon's Maze, I think in general, we should have pushed a little bit harder on the second Ravnica block to be a little bit uh, edgier. I think that we knew that, you know, coming after um, two kinds of things that we'd never done before, after and before in Innistrad and Theros, some very top-down sets, that we wanted a, a very kind of structural, mechanical block 
to kind of make sure we weren't uh, in over our heads in terms of design and innovation practices. But I think as a result of that, we saw just a lot of things not quite working out the way we wanted it to. I think a few of the sets in Gatecrash, a few of the mechanics in Gatecrash were a little overpowered. Exert was stronger than we wanted it to be. Cypher was kind of not really exciting. Um, and we wanted uh, to speed the format up in the second set so we could slow it down with the third set. But I think we did that a little too much. And as a result, a lot of the limited environment when Dragon's Maze debuted was just kind of overshadowed by the speed and power of some of the Gatecrash cards. I think that, again, with Dragon's Maze, I would have I done a little more to slow down the format. I think I would have printed, you know, four-ish col- uh, five-color fixers, not ten two-color fixers. I would have made the uh, gatekeepers a little bit bigger uh, so that they could fulfill their role as kind of rewarding uh, five-color decks and slowing down the environment. I think I wouldn't have tried to do a cycle of mythics and a cycle of legends separately and not allow them to kind of capitalize on each other's momentum. Um, you know, there, there's a lot, I think, that that could have gone differently. I think with Scars of Mirrodin block, uh, when we were playtesting that set, originally the Infect decks were too powerful and too linear until all of our playtesters realized Infect was just a good ability. And because of equipment, there was nothing wrong with playing a lot of Infect cards and a lot of regular cards because, you know, your Infect guys just had Wither and could kill the opponent in two or three attacks if they had an equipment on it. They're better than normal cards. I think the marketing of Mirrodin Block was very this side versus this side. And I think that primed players to kind of go hyperlinear on one side or the other. Uh, and that, coupled with the kind of bombiness of Scars of Mirrodin in particular, meant that I think the limited environments never really were able to mature in the way that the play pattern that they had internally would have indicated. And that's unfortunate because I think that those were actually pretty rewarding limited sets. Um, you know, I think Innistrad uh, was a masterpiece, a great work of art by uh, Rosewater and Lauer. Not a whole lot, we, in my opinion, we should have done differently there. Obviously, a few cards, power level, were quite strong. You have cards like Liliana, you have Snapcaster, you have things like Delver of Secret, which I think was fine for standard, but was uh, was quite powerful in, in eternal format. Um, and, and then with Theros, I think we had some um, just kind of categorically weak second and third sets, which was around the time we were realizing that three-set blocks, you know, the reasoning behind them wasn't particularly solid, and we, we needed to change that structurally anyway. So, you know, I think that a lot of what um, wound up happening in terms of design process are things that in retrospect I, I, I'm glad happened. You know, for a long time, it was nobody's job to playtest the standard format. Uh, which is just insane when you think about it. Okay, we've got our most powerful format ever. It's no one's job description to actually be doing that. Uh, that that's obviously an error. Um, I think that similarly, you know, thinking that because three arc structure in stories has sort of three beats, A, that's not really true, but B, there's no reason to assume that that maps on to a large, small, small set release. So I think that was an important structural change. Um, but yeah, so so a lot of the decisions I think I would have made retrospectively have already kind of been operationalized. I think that one of the the things that I would have done differently um, would would not be to swing that pendulum too far to the other side. 
you know, I think that we've we've seen sets released this year that are just extraordinarily powerful. And I think we're a, a bit of an overreaction to the the sort of mid-rangey um, underperformance of Ixalan. Uh, and I, I definitely don't think I would have done that. And I definitely don't think that just because I've had a, you know, we have a dedicated play design team that you can assume that that team is going to catch all of the risk and be able to push the risk harder. I think from a process and innovation perspective, that's not the right conclusion to draw from the existence of that structure. Um, so, you know, there, there's some things that are not things that I would have done differently, but that I would have fought hard to make sure uh, remained in place um, that, you know, are also things that I think about. I guess I, I'll go ahead and give you one example of those. Matt Place and I on our internal wiki had a set of effects that were essentially just like, don't print more than two of these on the same card. And it was things like raw card advantage, instant speed, tutoring, cost reduction, um, you know, single colored mana cost. Uh, stuff like that, um, and 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 you know they're they're the kinds of rules that would mean that you just don't print a card like Dig Through Time or like Collected Company or like Etherworks Marvel or like Urza or like Golos because you just don't have you know repeatable Minds Desire effects on a mana accelerant you know or on a cost reducer you just don't do that. Those are the guardrails that we were talking about earlier. And, That's exactly uh, right. And you had also yeah. mentioned the Eternal Wiki dissolving over time, right? As I recall. That's right. Yeah, I don't know a lot of the details, but I know that, you know, as I mean, and some of it's natural, right? I mean, as a business, you want to not be using 20-year-old information technology to make your decisions. But I do think, based on what I understand, a lot of the kind of written record of the design philosophy, not just some of the theories of design, but also some of the objectives that you're solving for. You know, when w one of the things that happened when I was at Wizards was that we launched the modern format. Um, it's easy to forget that that used to not be a format. And we had very specific goals about bridging the gap between extended and legacy. We wanted it to be a much more coherent format than extended was, which no one really understood. But we wanted to make sure that it was a great deal more accessible than legacy was. We wanted a fundamental turn, at least a full turn behind legacies, and we banned cards until we got there. We wanted it to be battlefield intensive, but not battlefield exclusive in stark contrast to standard, which we wanted to be a battlefield focused arena of play. And I think having those express design criteria for formats made it much easier to evaluate the success or failure of whether or not a format was delivering upon that promise. You know, I think any time that I'm asking players to give up their Friday nights, give up their Saturday nights, give up their weekends with their families, or in some cases, share their weekends with their families, you know, we're, we're making promises to players, or, you know, that that time is going to be spent valuably, that you're going to be playing fun games, you're going to be enriching your relationships with the people that matter to you. And I think that anytime you make a promise, you've got to hold yourself accountable to following through with that promise. And I think, therefore, it's a really good idea to have express criteria for how you're going to know whether you're following through or not. And I'd be interested to what extent any of those express criteria still maintain today. Um, you know, I, I don't know that they aren't. I just, I, I don't know to what extent that same thinking has been preserved. That's interesting. I would basically, as an outsider to what's going on internally at Wizards, 
I would have to expect that those things are are there because anytime there's a major announcement about something, whether it's BNR, banned and restricted, or something else, there's always a reference being made to those types of goals. But maybe to your point, how it's written down or enforced internally—that's the question, right? That's right. And and to what what level of resolution they're at? I mean, I think there's a difference between design criteria, which basically say, says this experience needs to be, you know, fun. It needs to be replayable or in any of these attributes that you can have. And, th- and those are good design criteria versus kind of goal oriented design criteria, which are, are distinct and measurable things. You know, the fundamental turn of this format needs to be turn X, right? The FT is a, a piece of magic theory that was written a long time ago, you know, X percentage of interaction density per deck needs to involve the battlefield. Um, You know, X percentage of the game actions should occur between turns X and Y on average in a format. These are not criteria that are uh, subjective. These are things you can look at a metagame and determine whether that is or is not taking place, right? And there's not a right answer for what those parameters should be, but there is an objective yes or no answer about whether you've succeeded in solving for them, right? You know, you look at a legacy matchup and if you parameterize it properly, you can tell and you can explicate what is different about that match and that game experience than the pioneer game experience. Um, And I think it's good practice to make sure you're holding yourself accountable for delivering upon those experiences. I would love to switch gears a little bit, Zach. Let's do it. I want you to tell me a little bit about what you're up to right now and maybe describe what you're involved in. And uh, yeah, give me a little bit of that. I would love to hear about it. Absolutely. So I left uh, Wizards of the Coast, actually, to pursue one of my dreams, uh, which was to move to New York and launch a nonprofit. It was called The Future Project, and it uh, helped young people discover and pursue their passion and purpose. Uh, we worked in schools. We invented like a new character in schools called a dream director. And the idea was to help everybody in the building discover who they are, what matters to them, and what they want to do about it. Uh, before I got into game design, I was involved in policy. I spent a year in Malaysia as a loose scholar passing the Selangor Right to Information Act. Uh, Before that, I was an advisor to the mayor of Memphis. And so I've always been passionate about policy and social impact. And I was excited to kind of jump back into that world. About three years ago, we realized that what we were doing with young people, we call dream directing, didn't just have to happen with young people. It could happen with anybody that was passionate about uh, launching and pursuing projects uh, to make the world a little bit better. And so we kind of spun that off and started what was essentially a, a, a startup studio or a venture studio for social impact initiatives uh, that tried to kind of systemize the process of identifying a challenge, getting the resources and team necessary to execute upon that challenge, and then very quickly uh, launching that institution out into the world so that it could exist independent of the ecosystem that produced it and, and not have it all be interdependent. So that's kind of what we've been doing for the last several years and a couple of different iterations. Uh, we've had some successes. We've had some big failures. Uh, definitely have learned a lot about that process, how to do it, how not to do it. Um, But it's been a really awesome ride, and I spend most of my time now uh, with really high-leverage folks that care very deeply about making significant elements of the world uh, meaningfully better for themselves, for their communities. 
And uh, there, there's nothing I'd rather do. It's I, it's my dream job. I absolutely love my life. I love everything we're doing. Uh, obviously, I wish the ride was less bumpy than it is. Um, we've had you know times where we were the fastest growing social impact initiative in the country, flush with money, winning all kinds of awards, and then we've had uh, times where you know we've had big layoffs, big cuts, big losses, some some pretty uh, some pretty substantial failures many of which were my fault. Um, so, you know, it's, it's definitely not been all hunky dory. Um, but it's, I love being able to play on the kinds of issues that I think, um, make a big difference in the lives of a lot of different people. So, uh, life's pretty good these days. Can you give an example of a success that you've had, maybe a, a project initiative that you guys have helped springboard that you're really proud of as a case study, perhaps? Yeah, there's a couple. So um, one of the, you know, the most exciting one for me uh, might be a, a project with a major university. It's not public yet, but we're calling it the Center for Civic Imagination. And it aims to take kind of what the D school did at Stanford, uh, which which was kind of adjacent to their design school, but, but threaded a new approach of design through all kinds of different departments and working groups. We're aiming to do an analogous thing with this university partner and say, okay, policy isn't just about, um, you know, within the distinct policy shop, you know, walking through the mechanics of how to get stuff passed and writing papers and doing research, but really about threading a sort of approach to, to civic design, imagination, possibility, uh, innovation, um, through not only uh, the policy school, but all the schools that are adjacent to that, right? I mean, everything from uh, entrepreneurship to urban design to visual design to business to, you know, the social psychology of how impact initiatives and policies thread together to, to work in the first place. Um, so that's insanely exciting to me. Um, as far as we know, there haven't been anything of this scale uh, done quite like that, um, say at least in an American university. So that's exciting. Uh, I think that another group that was affiliated with us, um, they're a totally independent group, uh, and they're doing really good work. Uh, it's called the National, in, in National Innovation Service, and they're doing some pretty dope stuff uh, with homelessness in Seattle. Uh, they're actually managing the consolidation of some of the different government departments that are working together to try and tackle a really thorny issue. Um, and then there's uh, a bunch of other stuff that I think is kind of more at the umbrella level. Um, we're trying to help bring the Aurora Forum, which is an international humanitarian initiative sponsored by the survivors of the Armenian genocide, uh, here to the U.S. I think they've got an incredibly distinct kind of ecosystem level approach to social impact development that we could learn a lot from here in the States. Um, and we're trying to make that happen. Um, so it's it's really awesome to be able to see so many bold visions um, for for things that uh, actually um, need this kind of early stage support, right? I mean, there, there's tons of philanthropy in the country. There's about four times as much. Uh, money flowing into social impact initiatives there is into venture capital, for example, which surprised me when I learned. Um, yeah, that is but, very surprising. Yeah, yeah, but 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 a lot of that capital is really late stage, so it's good that it's flowing toward initiatives that are kind of proven and that work. Um, but the stuff that I'm most excited about is actually on the the earlier phase of the kind of risk upside profile. Um, it's really hard to funnel 
philanthropic capital and support to unproven, high-risk, bold, visionary uh, initiatives that are playing in a space that hasn't really matured yet. Um, and you know, when you hit on a bet like that, you get stuff like malaria no more that uh, is dramatically reduced. Uh, the incidence of, of malaria, malaria globally. Um, in some cases, you've had, uh, you know, diseases be essentially cured, right? Or you've got work uh, like my friends have done in New York City. It's essentially applying to, you know, a machine learning approach to combating human trafficking um, that dramatically reduced uh, the incidence of human trafficking, at least here in the New York City area. So when you hit um, it's the best feeling in the world. Um, but obviously, you know, it's, it's like designing a magic metagame. You've got complex systems that are dynamic, um, and folks, real lives and, and real experiences, um, and real relationships are on the line. So you've got to take that seriously and you've got to be robust about it. Um, and, and I, I'm humbled by the difficulty of really jamming on some of these intractable, uh, thorny challenges. Um, it's it's a really rewarding way to spend my time and energy every day. What are some of the biggest challenges or missteps that you have had in the past? You you, you kind of touched on it, but I would love to hear maybe one or two examples of that. Yeah, so I think one of the challenges, you know, I, I started my first business in fifth grade, and I've done a lot of uh, I've done a lot of entrepreneurship. Um, but in a traditional business, right, growth is basically good, right? Um, you know, obviously you don't want to grow at the expense of your margins or you don't want to grow at a loss or do a lot of the things that we're seeing in the startup world right now where growth is predicated on an ability to monetize user engagement that there isn't necessarily a business model for like there was eight years ago. Um, but by and large, you're still rewarded for growth. Um, social impact doesn't really work like that. Um, not just because of the unsustainability uh, of the cost side, uh, you don't really have uh, scalability economics in the same way a lot of the time, but also because that sometimes means there's an inefficiency in your ability to collaborate with the other stakeholders in the ecosystem, right? When you have an impact imperative, it doesn't matter if you're accomplishing your goal or you're catalyzing another group of people to accomplish the goal. What you care about is whether the ecosystem level work results in the solving of the problem that you care about. That is a very different, but also much more complex measurement and optimization challenge. And I think I uh, had the muscle memory of trying to come at some of these challenges through the growth of the institutional ecosystem and enlarging the number of folks served and uh, enlarging the amount of dollars distributed. Uh, and that isn't really um, the right optimization function for a uh, ecosystem level solution. Um, and I didn't really have the muscle memory of the playbook to kind of systemize the kind of collaborations and collaborative incentive structures that are necessary to galvanize, you know, really a movement of stakeholders in a given space. And uh, because of that, uh, you know, frankly, we, we just spent too much money for, for, for a little bit, um, you know, and, and, and we're nominally succeeding at that, but, uh, we're growing at an unsustainable rate relative to our capital inflows. So, um, it's, it's, it's sort of like, uh, I guess learning to ride a different bike 
except that bike works more like a skateboard. You know, you can't really say, oh, this is mostly like riding a bike and I need to make some adjustments. I mean, it's a fundamentally different approach to achieving your goal. Um, and it's something that, uh, at least for me, was deeply counterintuitive. And it's been, um, it's been rewarding to try and figure out. Um, but it's really sucked when we've kind of fell on our face a couple of times. But it does sound rather impressive to me that you have the self-awareness or your organization has the self-awareness to look at things closely and basically figure out we're applying this model to this thing, which is actually not the right model. So how would you explain your level of self-awareness or your collective self-awareness in trying to troubleshoot these things and actually seeing that? Because I know a lot of people or groups don't aren't actually capable of doing that. I'm just curious. <laughs> well, and, uh, you know, not to make it an overly trite submission, uh, given the subject matter that we're talking about, but mm -hmm. this is something that I think magic is really good at training someone to do. I think that in magic at any given moment, you always have the opta, you always have the option of trading feeling better for doing better right? You always can make yourself feel better by saying, oh, my draws were bad. I got screwed. I didn't find this card. My opponent got lucky. This matchup's bad. There's an infinite litany of excuses that you can make about why it is you lost, right? And it always feels better to be able to make one of those excuses, right? Because none of us want to confront the fact that we devoted tons of attention and the whole of our brain power towards solving for something that we just demonstrably failed at solving, right? That's very uncomfortable. So right. we can always engage in some sort of process that basically allows us to not internalize the fact that that's happening. Or we can say, what could we control? And what did we do wrong? And what was going on in our brain and our approach that led to us making those kinds of errors? Right. And sometimes you'll realize that you didn't, in fact, make an error and it really was all variance. But getting good at magic is practicing the interplay between those two habits and becoming, I think, a lot more comfortable existing mostly in the space of every single game I'm making errors. Every single game, there's a reason why I'm making those errors. And if I update my mental models and I practice the muscle memory necessary to execute on those mental models, I will improve as a player, right? And I think that that applies to entrepreneurship. I think that applies to policy. I think that applies to social impact. At any given moment of your life, especially as a leader, um, especially as a manager, right, where you've got 250, 300 people's well-being on the line for your decisions, there are an infinite number of decisions you can make at an infinite number of points in time, most of which you're not making, right? And the mechanics available to you are not just lands and spells. The mechanics available to you are every email you could send, every meeting that you could hold, every piece of comms that you send out to your team, every phone call you can make to get on the level about something. And so the likelihood that you're executing each one of those mechanics 
is analogous to, and in fact, probably infinitely less likely than, the idea that you're playing, you know, every stage of an ad nauseum game perfectly against a highly disruptive deck, right? I mean, there's just so many different decision points. And so I think you become comfortable with the practice of being able to kind of debrief regularly on their actions as they happen, develop principles out of what you're seeing work and not work, and develop a pretty robust picture of what you're actually like, not what you wish you were like, to kind of use yourself as a chess piece within the machine that you've designed to accomplish your goals. Um, so I really do think magic is a, a pretty powerful testing ground for that. And I think that the alternative for folks that may not have been through a crucible like this is to often lean on the side of kind of protecting, you know, solving for our own insecurities, right? And solving for um, the feeling of inadequacy that comes with shouldering a major challenge and not being able to deliver on it. And uh, the thing that I think is important to bear in mind is like the only person that's experiencing the, uh, the pain of our own feelings of inadequacy are us, right? Everybody else is experiencing the consequences of our decisions, our choices, and our actions. And so if we actually care about uh, developing the ecosystem level, it's our thoughts, our choices, and our actions that are going to yield the real results we want to see. And so it's actually incumbent upon us to be less and less motivated by the doubts and insecurities and uh, unhealthy habits uh, compulsions and everything else that might modify our ability to take action as leaders. Um, so I, th- I think magic's actually a really good testing ground for for getting good at that sort of stuff. That makes total sense. And that now begs the question, were you attracted to magic because of these types of things or did these types of... Cause what I'm trying to ask is, was that also why you were attracted to magic in the first place? Or was that just something that you learn after you got sucked into magic for other reasons. So my origin story in magic, I think is kind of funny. I might be the only competitive magic player who uh, got into the game because his mom insisted that he did. Uh, Okay. That's definitely a first out of the (laughs) folks I've talked to. So there you go. So I was um, one of those kind of doogie housery prodigy kids. I think that a lot of magic players kind of were, you know, went through whatever that gifted dance was. Um, But when I was little, I was doing everything. I was, you know, a kid actor. I was, um, you know, I got a black belt in martial arts. I was, like I said, starting companies. There's an episode of Planet Money about my beanie babies. Uh, I was doing a lot of different stuff. Um, But at the same time, um, I was coming from a place where I looked, acted, and felt very different from a lot of the other folks that I was competing against. Um, you know, my, my family, uh, wasn't poor, but they definitely didn't have anywhere near the kinds of kind of money that, uh, a lot of the folks that I was doing stuff with had access to. And, uh, my mom took me aside at a chess tournament, uh, and basically said, Zach, you know, when you win this chess tournament, you get a trophy. When you win one of these magic tournaments at the time, this is the JSS, you get a thousand dollars. You might want to focus on this magic stuff. Because it seems to yield a lot more when you succeed at it. And it was hard for me to argue with that reasoning. The, uh, you know, and the other thing that I think was really resonant with me 
um, when I was in eighth grade, I, uh, you know, when I was younger, I was able to, due to the generosity of this private school, um, basically get a little bit of scholarship money with the help of my old family to kind of pooled resources for me to go to this pretty awesome non-sectarian private school in Memphis that was a lot better than the school I'd be going to that was on my block. And, uh, you know, but it was very, it was just from a very different kind of world than a lot of the other folks there. And in eighth grade, uh, my Latin class uh, put together like a field trip to Italy. And that was just something that economically my family wasn't able to do and I wasn't able to do. So everybody in the Latin class kind of went to Italy except for me uh, and I got to live vicariously through their pictures. I didn't I didn't feel bad or ashamed about it, but I was very clear that there were some opportunities that given where I was coming from and what I had access to, I just wouldn't be able to pursue unless I figured out a way to do that. And Magic uh, and the Pro Tour at the time, um, you know, was, this is before they were giving out plane tickets to everything, but it's still a way to see all kinds of different parts of the world and actually meet people from totally different backgrounds than mine that I knew was important to me as somebody that wanted to understand the system of the world and the way it worked. And so I used magic, especially in the early days of my professional quote career, mostly as a way to just kind of subsidize travel um, and collaborate with folks around the world. I mean, this is during the Bush era, right? So, you know, it was, <laughs> it was a time when America's role in global politics, um, perhaps even more than, than today, where a lot of these questions have been settled, was really up in the air, right? Um, and it was immeasurably valuable. To be able to get the perspective of, you know, Belgians and Brazilians and Japanese folks on what was happening with America's global role in the world. And I like to think that getting to hear an American's perspective on what was going on and what people did and did not think about it was valuable and informative, too. Um, much less all the normal upsides of traveling, of just realizing that, you know, all a lot of norms that we take is for granted and, and is universal and is the way things kind of are just aren't, <laughs> you know, there's a magic analogy there, right? It's like, you may think that a certain card is just totally great and learn that in a different context, it's just not that way at all. Right. And you don't really... Yeah have any reason to believe that until you see it happening. So I think magic was uh, both a vector of getting at, getting to expand the horizons of my world um, and also a vector of actually equipping me with a lot of the resources I need to do the kind of stuff in life that was important to me. Um, the, I guess the last thing I'll say about that is that there was something too about, you know, magic, the pro tour started getting big right around the time that the internet started becoming mainstream, right? Everybody talks about the dojo, um, you know, very early star city games, brain burst, some of the old magic sites, but there truly was this valence of magic kind of mirrored the inner connectivity of the internet writ large. And for, you know, a precocious boy from Memphis, Tennessee, the opportunity to actually see where I stacked up, not just against the community of Americans that were passionate about the same things that I did, but the global community of folks that were passionate about the same things I was, was the most incredibly valuable experience because it gave me the faith, belief, and confidence 
that I really could operate at the highest level, even if I wasn't winning all the time. I, I belonged in the room at a set of pretty complex challenges that demanded a lot from me. And I think that I wouldn't have had the competence I I ultimately garnered to, you know, go to Malaysia and work on policy, to pursue a career in political journalism, certainly to launch companies, if there hadn't been a way of truly seeing, okay, um, how does this, you know, little boy from a random neighborhood in Hickory Hill, Memphis, actually stack up when the burden is to operate at the highest level possible? And I think that was uh, an irreparably valuable experience for me. It sounds like magic was a way for you to channel something that was already part of you, right? It was just something that uh -huh. you could apply yourself to words and offered benefits like the travel and things like that. So did you know right away that you were good at magic? What was that process like for you? It's funny. I uh, Magic has had like... S curve steps uh, for me. I mean, I've never been. <laughs> I love that description. Yeah. <laughs> S curve steps. Uh, we we leave it to the listeners to parse out what that actually means. Um, but you know, I've never been the best magic player in the world, right? I've I've, I've been at various points, probably in the top hundred. Um, but you know, I, I think I've I've all, for a long time belonged in the room, but I don't think I've ever had the level of acumen um, that some of the all time greats have had. But I, I definitely can pinpoint specific moments where I got like very rapidly better very fast. And they were usually correspondent with important lessons involving personal growth. So, you know, when I was playing at the local level, I was so bad for so long because it was so important to me that I be able to be original, right? And I wasn't able mm. to kind of view the decks that I was building objectively because yeah. I needed to feel creative, right? I needed to seem original. I needed to validate my hunger for my perceptiveness and intellect to be somehow more highly attuned than the rest of the environment, right? And so I just wasn't looking clearly at my own decks. And it wasn't until uh, a Memphis pro who had a lot of success basically took me aside and said, like, you're talented, but you're getting in your own way. And so for a month, I want you to just not have an original thought, not <laughs> try to figure things out, and just yeah. emulate me. He was basically mm -hmm. just like, ask yourself, what would I do in this situation? And just do that. And get yourself out of it. And also play just established good decks. Don't change a card. Actually learn why they're good and how they're worked. And 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 it was mind blowing to me as somebody that had, um, you know, and still has probably too much of, but certainly at that time had uh, an outsized dose of uh, of of self belief, overconfidence, and self concept to realize that I was improving proportionate to the degree that I was eradicating that loyalty to that self-concept. I mean, that was a profound moment. Um, it helped me understand how to step out of my own way and it helped me appreciate the, um, the successes and the bounty that other folks who were further along the journey had. Um, so I remember that. I remember one moment when Irvin Tormos, two-time Pro Tour Top 8 competitor, walked me through limited magic. He's like, Zach, how have you been this bad at limited for so long? Uh, which, which I was, and frankly, mostly still am. 
but he just kind of gave me a few sets of principles about like, you know, this is why blocking, even if you have mana up in a combat trick and they do, you know, usually tends to be worse than trying to race uh, with comparably scattered units. He talked to me a little bit about, you know, what signals are important to read, but also what's important to ignore in a draft so that you're not thinking about too many irrelevant things. And he really helped me uh, understand, you know, in a given moment in the draft, how to balance ten- uh, synergy and raw power. And I think after that, I got like 100 rating points better in limited in like two weeks. You know, I top eight a limited GP. I top 16 to limited GP that was like, you know, the two or three tournaments right after I played that. And it was like, oh, I, I, I feel the muscle memory of getting a lot better. And then the the third time was when I was working with uh, Pat Chapin, good friend of mine, uh, for Pro Tour Honolulu, and I just didn't have a deck. And he was basically like, I can't give you a deck. Uh, I've got to practice for this tournament myself, um, but you can certainly watch me play. And so again, I just got in the psychology not of trying to break it all myself, but I was trying to figure out, you know, why was what Pat and what Mike Jacob were doing, why was it working and why was it valuable and what did that mean? Um, and I could purely come at things from a just understanding and curiosity driven approach rather than an exploitation driven and kind of practice oriented approach. And uh, that obviously worked out incredibly well. So it, it's it's wild that despite having played the game for 25 years at this point, which is kind of mind blowing to think about, or I guess 24 or 23 years, but most of magic's lifespan um, to have these very high intensity moments where you can feel yourself just level up. um, It's one of the most rewarding aspects of playing the game. You seem to be very good at learning from others and, have taking others perspectives or advice and internalizing that where do you think that comes from (laughs) i really like people and i really like seeing what makes people tick and i think that i i have made enough very bad decisions in my life to have some very demonstrable evidence that i don't have purely in me, just intrinsically, everything it takes to be a successful person, right? I've been shitty to partners who have treated me very well. I have made business decisions that demonstrably did not work out. Um, In magic, like we just talked about, I've had deficiencies that were only able to be corrected by emulating other people. Um, and I've I've worked very hard at some things like poetry and creative writing and performance that I'm good at, um, but but not great at, right? Um, and and what I mean by that is sometimes I think we all justify, oh well, I could be good at that thing or I could succeed at something if I really devoted my attention to it, um, but we don't. I've definitely heard that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I've had a lot of experiences where I've actually sat and put that time and energy into a thing and did well enough that it's like, oh, yeah, you know, like I'm being good at this. Right. It's like it's not like I don't have the talent. It's not like I don't have whatever it takes. Like I am, you know, I'm publishing in, in some of the highest, most prestigious literary journals in the country. But it's like I'm still just fine. You know, it's like in the top tier of folks, 
I am toward the bottom of that, right? So it's like the the feeling of really realizing that other people who have put in a comparable amount of effort and exist in the same space that you do are just more talented. Um, and, and they just are operating at a superior level to something that you really care about. And that is a powerful reminder, especially I think when you have a, uh, as someone politely put it to me, you have a surplus of ego. <laughs> there you go. Um, you know, it, it, it's a powerful reminder to just not get too caught up in uh, how great I think I am because there's, there's way more people doing way more stuff uh, along axes of things that I care about um, that, that are just really, truly amazing themselves. So I think all of those things together have been a healthy balance of, you know, and I, I, I'm fortunate. I mean, I don't really doubt myself very much. I, I don't feel like I don't belong in a lot of spaces. I feel confident and comfortable as a leader and as a creative, but I've got a lot of data points about when I don't have it right. And when I've messed something up or when I'm not getting something important or when somebody else is truly demonstrating mastery that is awe inspiring to behold that I'm always trying to figure out, okay, where can I be better? What do I need to learn from others? What do I not yet understand about the system? Um, I guess the last thing I'll say about this is I think that a lot of the time it's easy to be a little compulsive about, you know, what will I look like if I do this or what will this mean if it goes wrong or, you know, will I, am I actually good enough to be in this room? And I think something that was a really powerful realization I have is just that like the book will be the book will write itself. You know, I don't mean literally a book, but I mean, in other words, whether you are good enough to accomplish a thing you care about will be revealed by virtue of the extent to which you do or do not accomplish that thing. Right. So most of the desire to control all that on the front end. I think comes from uh, what can be a compulsive need to feel in control of a situation because we care about it a lot and we feel very vulnerable about being that invested in something that ultimately can let us down or disappoint us. But I think the very act of trying to be in control of something that is fundamentally uncontrollable causes us to start hedging on the front end um, and not being as vulnerable as we necessarily must be to truly give our all, all in service of something that matters. And so when you don't pre-hedge and you trust that whatever happens will be revealed, it will either reveal that you succeeded or that you didn't, but you have confidence in kind of the sorting mechanism of the world to pursue that, you can focus purely on delivering at the highest level you know how. And I think that that is actually a tremendous feeling of relief and a tremendous feeling of focus to embrace the vulnerability of our eagerness to succeed at that which we care about the most. A lot of this is really resonating with me because I also think that maybe this is a different way to, to state it, but I do strongly believe that it is ultimately what we do that really matters because there's a lot of things that you can think about or justify or make excuses for in your head. And, and you can also think things like I'm not adequate or I'm not fit for this. Uh, you know, I, I think we all have gone through these kind of things in our minds. 
But at the end of the day, like it's really about what you've actually done, right? Like you can have good intentions, bad intentions, doubts or confidence, but what really matters and what really impacts other people is not what's inside your head, but how you actually translated that to results, you know? So that, that, that that's something that I, I, I think about a lot, actually. I think you're dead on the money with that. And I think there's an, uh, another dimension to it that's super important as we contextualize those results, which is what have we been willing to take accountability for? Um, my favorite people are the kinds of people that actually draw a tremendous correlation between what they care about and what they put themselves on the hook for delivering. I think it's just so easy to act for things that we're not ultimately responsible for, that we would have done stuff in a certain way that, you know, there's a right way to do it. And it's easy to understand that the folks who are accountable for that thing are doing everything wrong. Um, you know, that, that we mistrust the process. And sometimes there's a lot of legitimate reasons for that. But um, a, a book I'm reading right now that I deeply enjoy is Samantha Power's newest book, The Education of an Idealist. Um, and in that book, she says, you know, a book called The Education of an Idealist, you'd expect it to be, oh, I had all these naive young beliefs and, you know, the world kind of beat it out of me and I learned, you know, what, what the real world looked like. And she says kind of cheekily at the end of the intro, no, 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 this is not that book. Uh, instead, she explores the dynamics of, of what happens. You know, she she got her, her kickstart in her career writing one of the best books on genocide, America in the Age of Genocide ever. She won the Pulitzer Prize very young and, uh, you know, ultimately became the UN uh, or the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. And suddenly all these things that she was talking about, she was on the receiving end of. She was accountable for navigating. And it wasn't like that process was totally different from what she imagined it to be. But it came with a whole new set of variables, responsibilities, optimization vectors, obligations, things to think about that she just never had to confront when she wasn't on the inside actually accountable for delivering that result. And that's to me what's interesting, not the idea that everything fundamentally changes, but that as we are in the arena responsible for getting something over the finish line, there's a whole host of information and a whole host of things that we have to bear in mind that never were accessible to us on the front end. And so my favorite people are those who, when they purport to care about something, whether it's you know animal rights or the environment or caring for the people they we love or you know, performing, uh, you know, dance at the highest level. Actually, the first question they ask themselves subsequently is, how do I put myself in a position to be there? How do I arrange my life such that I'm not just sitting and talking about this, but I actually need to deliver? Because being in that context is going to be what allows me to fully understand that which I'm nominally passionate about in a way that you can never be when you're an observer, right? Right. And so I right. think that it's not just about, to your point, delivering results. It's actually about the, and, and taking actions. It's about the comprehensiveness of understanding that comes when every second of every day, you're on the line for something that matters. And that's one of the most powerful growth experiences we can have. And I think when we talk about wisdom, and people that we really respect the judgment of, 
it's folks that have forced themselves to be on the hook for and have skin in the game for uh, the values and character-driven decisions that they hold most dear to them. For sure. And there's even a microcosm of this with ourselves because it's it's definitely the biggest step to be accountable to the world and to other people. But even in things like learning, if you tell somebody that you're going to learn something, the chances are much higher you're going to actually do it. If you actually go to school to take a course, the chances right. are it's better than you just saying, I'm going to read a book and learn something from that uh-huh. book. You, don't, you, know, you know what I mean? Like unstructured oh, yeah. versus structured. I'm thinking of all these applications as, as we're talking through this. So, What are some of the applications you're thinking of? Oh, no, I'm just saying that what you're saying about accountability is totally correct. You have to, <laughs> maybe to use a crude term, like you have to put yourself on the line yeah. in order to, to do anything that is of value, right? Well, exactly. And I think that there's, um, I, I think that, brings to the fore a lot of the issues that are sort of salient in our, you know, kind of contemporary culture and discourse right now. Um, there's a great Scientific American article um, that it's basically on the subject of uh, why smart people are less inclined to listen. And uh, it, it basically points out that the more uh, it, it measures scientific literacy, which is a, a technical term, it's basically the more educated we are at a discourse space, the better we are at rationalizing what we already believe. <laughs> we 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 exactly. we have very powerful Nail on head. Yes, <laughs> right. We we have a very powerful mind that is sifting through a large number of facts very selectively to just reinforce what we already care about. And there's a concurrent variable called scientific curiosity that has to be present in order for the greater amount of information that we have to lead to greater understanding. And that curiosity is measured by, independent of how strong someone is in their beliefs, how hungry are they to actually seek out new and contradictory information, right? Whether it comports with their worldview or not. And I think that kind of curiosity is the kind of curiosity that you're incentivized to pursue when you're actually on the hook for delivering a result because the delivery of that result and the consequences of it in the real world are more important to you than the feeling you have about yourself and the social capital that you get from aligning with people who already mirror your viewpoints, right? And there's just no reason to have that kind of curiosity unless you're a truly exceptional person, unless you're kind of on the line, like you say, for getting something over the finish line. The same way that in magic, the fact that there is a definitive winner or loser and the fact that winning or losing comes with tangible upside provides the kind of uh, muscle memory feedback you need to overcome um, the tendency that we all have to reinforce what we already believe. Um, so this is one of the best articles written, I think, on uh, on the psychology of positive reinforcement from one social group and, and why um, the, the more we're kind of ensconced in our social media universes, the higher the returns we get for being able to to signal values that reinforce the affinity groups that we care about. And um, without a deliberate practice, we're gonna succumb to that. 
you know, without a practice of ensuring that we're pursuing that curiosity. And, you know, I think everybody, myself included, reads that article and says, you know, oh, this is the reason for the problems that we're seeing, forgetting that that applies to us too, you know, and, yes. and, and that we're, we're parts of the problem, right? Not because we're bad people, but because our brains are not going to go through this process unless we force them to. And uh, the best way of forcing us to, like you said, whether it's taking a class versus making a commitment, whether it's sharing with a person in your life that you care about, that you're going to be on the hook for doing something, whether we have to build structures that make it easier rather than harder to follow through on the things that we nominally value, right? Rather than just kind of trying to brute force it and hoping that everything works out. Yeah. Speaking of having everything work out, I would like to dig a bit deeper into your passion for what you're doing right now with yeah. future project and future yeah. company. Yeah. What drew you to this area of social good and making a difference in the first place? I, I feel like this must be going back to your much, much younger years, but I, I definitely want to explore this strand and, and try to figure out how that first appeared. So maybe you can offer me your, your best hypothesis of that <laughs> and what drives you. Speaking of self-knowledge, I'll try to display some self-knowledge. You know, I, I think there were kind of two tensions in my life growing up. Um, the first was, you know, again, although I, I, I grew up, you know, both my parents had jobs. Both my parents uh, cared deeply about me. You know, we were, we were doing okay. Um, the next ring out of my family, you know, I, I, I had a lot of folks – uh, who were incarcerated, a lot of folks who were addicted to drugs and alcohol, a lot of folks who dealt with some really messed up uh, situations with their parents um, th that I, I won't go into here, but uh, so, some really tremendous challenges. Um, coupled to that, we were, you know, I was robbed at gunpoint several times at a young age. Um, and, you know, we we didn't live so in the kind a rough of neighborhood, right? It was the only neighborhood you knew, but it was rough. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and again, it wasn't the, the worst thing of all time or anything, but it was, it was definitely something where you had to be cognizant of your, your vulnerability and mortality. Um, very young. Right. Um, and, and you kind of could see the tangible consequences of that. Um, it not abstractly, but in folks in your own life. And then on the other dimension of it, I was kind of this prodigy kid who was way out ahead of the curve on, you know, reading academic performance. I got uh, a high enough ACT score, I think, to get into college when I was like eight years old or something. And, uh, you know, I was, I was kind of a kid actor. I was doing a lot. And um, it, there was there was this tension between folks always asking, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, what are you going to do with your life? You have all this possibility on the one hand. Um, and on the other hand, literally not being sure if I was going to be alive past a certain point, right? Um, or, or if something was going to happen to me or something's going to happen to the people I love. Uh, and I have no idea how much of that was real um, or how much of the stuff um, was, you know, your, your young child's imagination getting away with you. Um, but you know, we, we knew plenty of folks who died, right? We knew plenty of folks who didn't have the privilege of getting able to wake up in the morning and experience the day. And I have vivid memories of thinking about what it would be like to talk to their parents in some cases, actually talking to the, the folks in their lives who they loved 
and needing to justify why do I get to be alive right now when somebody else does not, right? And and I didn't come at that as a question uh, of guilt. I came at that as an authentic exploration of I need to be doing things that rationalize the capabilities that I'm able to deploy towards an end that honors the memory of all of those who didn't have the option of getting to make that choice. And that just seemed for as long as I can remember, not only good, but just logical, right? I mean, we all have to answer that question of, of how are we making the most of the opportunities that we're given in our lives? Um, and, and so the question to me was always, through what means can I best enrich the experience of consciousness, the experience of being able to inhabit this body in this world for as many people as possible? And I think there's qualitative dimensions to that that operate differently. So, you know, if you're working at a policy level, you're probably not going to have as intensive an experience on somebody as you do if you're making, you know, a, a piece of film that they're devoting rapt attention to for two hours. But you're probably going to have a much wider uh, sort of pool of ripples and a lot more of structural effect on what it is they're doing. Conversely, if you're doing something like making a game, especially a game they're playing for 10, 20 years of their lives, you have the opportunity to catalyze a lot of relationships and set the tone for a lot of structure and consistency that is a, a lattice upon which folks can build some of the, the most important habits and relationships they're able to form. Um, conversely, like you're probably not going to be solving poverty with that, right? So I've always looked at the different mechanics that are available to me that are at the kind of intersection of my interest and skills and figured out, okay, what can I do at what distribution to leverage that sort of skill or that platform to make uh, as many folks' lives better as I can in a variety of different ways. Um, and, and that evolves as you learn and discover things about the world and about yourself. Um, but it, but it's been a question that's always been on my mind. I mean, whenever I tell a story like this, I get self-conscious, uh, both because I think a lot of folks had it a lot harder than I did and, and because it was so long ago. I mean, there may be memories that I have that – uh, yeah, I could see, I could see somebody I knew from childhood being like, Zach, it didn't really work out that way. But, uh, I, you know, that was definitely the experience that, that I remember being kind of omnipresent growing up. I was always terrified of dying. Um, and it was always, um, forefront of mind to me to take questions about how do you know what the good is? How do you know that you're pursuing it? How do you know you're engendering it? Not as abstract questions, but as very real governing variables for the decisions that I made. Um, Because if you aren't confident in what you're doing and the goodness of it, I think it's very important to answer or have a response to, you know, okay, great. Why do you get to experience this? Um, why are you enhancing the environment that you occupy, right? Um, because if all we're doing is solving, solving for our own, uh, our own sort of feelings, our own sort of sensations, our own sort of uh, subjective well-being, you know, we're a rounding error in the scale of not just the world but the universe. And uh, there's only so high I think that kind of gets you in terms of the coherence of that kind of optimization function, I think we can all be a little bit more robust than that. Do you think you came to these things or these realizations on your own, or do you think that you had some role models that may have helped you see things in this way? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody does anything on their own, right? I mean, I think that even when we want to tell ourselves that sometimes, it, it doesn't really work out. Uh, that's a, that's an interesting answer, actually. And not, not to make my question a leading question, but yeah. I often think of this a lot. I, I think of... Maybe I'm just getting cynical in my older age, but <laughs> I, think I'm com- I think I'm coming around to the idea that fundamentally people don't change and we only change ourselves. And there may be people that I would say maybe when we're much younger in our formative years, they probably really push us. But most of the time it's more like nudging. And right. even if you look at something like the funnel of who, uh, this is such an arbitrary example, but sure. the funnel of who goes and picks up a self-help book and right. starts reading the seven habits of highly effective people, right. uh, to use a, a, tri- a, a an arbitrary example, that has to come from within. Like it doesn't like there's a million books out there on how to do certain things, but if you're not inclined to even visit that part of the bookstore, it's never going to happen for you. And I definitely agree with that. I mean, I, look, the idea of a person, I, I never found the nature versus nurture distinction to be interesting because there's just no such thing as a person removed from their environment, right? I mean, there, the idea of a de-individuated collective or conversely, the idea of a de-collectivized individual is just something that's phenomenologically impossible, right? I mean, I have friends who are in solitary confinement for years and years and years that talked about that being the most intersubjective they ever felt, right? Because they were a product of a set of intersecting collective systems that were exerting their force upon him, right? So even in the most isolating circumstance possible, I think the idea of, uh, you know, totally decollectivized individual primacy is just not the way it works. Um, but that said, that 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 isn't a assertion about the decreased role of the individual. And I think this is worth talking about. I mean, you know, the environment that I grew up in, the fact that it was as comparatively sane as it was, was the product of a great deal of choices by my, you know, parents, right? The education that I was able to have, you know, different teachers took bets on me. Uh, Different folks, you know, I mean, I I had to have all kinds of, you know, babysitters and folks that were just kind of hacking, uh, my ability to function as a basic human being when my parents were working, right? They didn't have to do that. Um, there, I mean, just any number of, of circumstances, you know, folks didn't have to teach me to play magic. Folks didn't have to buy my beanie babies when I was selling them. Folks didn't have to help me understand how to apply for college. Um, there's just all kinds of things that at any given moment, if it had gone any differently, whole avenues of my life wouldn't have been open to me. I mean, I, you know, I, I got promoted into an executive position at the nonprofit I worked at based on like the goodwill of folks that liked the way I worked. Right. I mean, uh, you know, I got to go on the loose because yeah, like you could argue, I did what was necessary by virtue of the scholarship committee, but I got letters of recommendation for people that didn't have to write them on me, you know? So it, the, the point is that every single decision we make is an intersection of our own reactions to the environment that we find ourselves within, right? And I think that the most useful thing to think about is that, you know, look, like sometimes you can get dealt aces, right? Other times you get dealt two, seven offsuit, right? You're a product of those cards, but you also still are obligated to play your hand perfectly. And if you didn't play your hand perfectly, there's always more that you can learn. 
right? And it's not like there's something mm-hmm. objectively that having aces means independent of the environment of a poker game, right? And as we know, even within the set of things that are a poker game, there's an infinite variety of ways to play poker, right? So I think the act of navigating life is the act of making a bunch of sort of intertwined, strange, loopy, interdependent decisions that relate all that we're bringing to the table at a given moment with all that our environment is capable of making possible. Um, Something that we talked about at, at Bridgewater a lot, and I've still got a ton of friends over there, is the idea that there really are kind of two selves, right? You've got yourself that is the way you are, um, with all your strengths and weaknesses, your foibles, your kind of skills, dispositions, and attributes, strengths, weaknesses, like I said, um, quirks, compulsions, everything else. And then you've got the second self that's kind of your manager. And it's the self that decides, given all of those attributes of who you are, how do you show up inside different contexts? And how do you build contexts? that are able to capitalize on what it is you bring to the table. And that self is much less at the mercy of all of those defining characteristics of you, right? Because it's operating in an abstract space. It's it's operating with the freedom to design all kinds of different environments. And so I think it's really important for us to bear those two selves in mind all the time. It's like, what are we doing to shape the environment in which we operate? And then how do we navigate that environment to our foremost ability? You know, just using the example you used, it's definitely up to an individual to decide whether to read the book or not. But the reason the book is there is due to the intersecting decisions of publishers and distributors and folks who are shipping the thing and folks that are writing the thing and folks that are templating the thing and folks who are stacking the book in every single, you know, other dimension possible, right? And the key is to be mindful of how those intersecting forces create an environment that you find yourself in so that to your point, you can ultimately go and pick up the book and read it and internalize it and start to put it into practice. Are you feeling like in your current role and in your organization as with the future company slash future project that you've, this is exactly where you want to be or do you feel like there are things that are frontiers that you have not yet explored and sort of part of you being on this planet that you you still want to do oh yeah i mean you know i think the nice thing about the the way that we're working right now is it kind of is a sandbox that can accommodate a variety of different things i mean i definitely um love working with high leverage leaders to launch like at scale initiatives with big social ambition. Like that's something that I think I want to do for the rest of my life. I think the context in which that applies is going to change as I get better and better at different things. And as I learn a little bit more about what I'm truly superlative at, what I'm merely good at and what I suck at. So I think that's going to be a continuous journey, but I do think that, um, the, the way that we kind of operate, um, not just at, at future, but, with agency and epiphany and some of the other groups that we've set to do this workout is that, you know, you have a lot of flexibility um, at being able to choose the projects that are most excited to you and the role that we, we need to occupy within those projects. That said, I mean, there's definitely some stuff I want to do over and above what's possible right now. I know that at some point in my life, I want to lead a very large philanthropic foundation. 
I think I know a lot about um, social impact investing on both the for-profit and nonprofit sides and the ability to kind of create venture-style risk profiles that are not as populous within the space. And I think I can do a lot of good um, being able to kind of operate as a catalyst within a broader ecosystem of this kind of thing. Uh, I want to run for office at some point. Uh, so this interview will probably get oh, out there and okay. be used against me. Uh, but that, but that's all right. Uh, that's something that, you know, I, I think I've, I've been able to demonstrate the ability to kind of uh, lead through hardship and uh, blend a kind of degree of communicating stuff in an accessible way, grasping the behavior of complex systems, leading uh, folks and managing institutions in a way that kind of solve for that. Um, and ultimately uh, show up with the strength of character necessary and hardship to, um, you know, at least merit, if not earn, the trust of folks whose lives are dependent on me. Um, and finally, uh, a woman I know named Sonal Shah managed this thing called the White House Office of Social Innovation and Civic Participation uh, under Obama. And it was just the awesomest department. Well, maybe. ATF was pretty dope. The U.S. Digital Service is pretty dope. There's a lot of dope uh, things that were actually being done at the federal government level that not a lot of folks know about, but I think really improved the lives of a lot of people. And I've come to respect, ironically, um, I may want be one of the few people that's not cynical about government right now. I, I've, I've started to respect the power that uh, a bureaucracy that's effectively run and scoped well actually has to accomplish real results in a way that no startup or even any company uh, has the leverage to be able to do. I think uh, something really powerful for anybody that's less familiar with some of these processes to read is just uh, Michael Lewis's latest book, The Fifth Risk. It's really short, but it does a great job of illuminating some of the things that federal departments are able to do and make possible that virtually you'd have no reason to hear about unless you decided to tell these stories. And, uh, you know, you've got folks, very competent, very smart folks managing, you know, trillion dollar budgets and the biggest stores of data in the world, um, you know, which is just a scale of, uh, of, of, of impact that you're not going to achieve any other way. And I've developed a respect for, what that can kind of do uniquely. And uh, that that's definitely something that I'm I'm curious about pursuing as my kind of life and career evolves. But me moving outside of New York probably, so <laughs> that's not going to happen anytime soon. You love New York. I'm way too obsessed with New York to, to go elsewhere. But no, I, 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 it's, it's less about, oh, I've got this vision for myself and more... Uh, to the accountability point, you know, if we take seriously the idea that we're on the hook for doing the best we can to try and uh, bend the arc of, you know, the moral universe toward justice or even just toward quality or whatever it is you want to do, I think you've got to be pretty aware of the avenues in your life that you're adjacent to, to actually have the leverage you need um, to, to be able to do that. Yeah, and have you given yourself a timeline for running for office? <laughs> it all depends on what you run for, right? So, um, you know, I, I'm I'm interested in doing stuff back home locally in Memphis. Obviously, that would mean moving there, um, and, and not in a perfunctory way, but actually, like, 
relearning and re-experiencing and reconnecting with all of the issues that uh, that, that are sort of the lifeblood of the city and, and how it actually works. And now it's been 15 years since I lived there. So, you know, I think you got to do that in a serious way. And you've got to do that in a way that doesn't act entitled that just because, you know, I've, I've, I've got a lot of resources, done some cool stuff in New York, can't act entitled to other folks' trust as a function of that. So, you know, that, that'll be a product, I think, of, of when I'm, I'm ready to say bye to New York, if I'm ready to say bye to New York, um, juxtaposed with some real felt need that actually is, is at the vertices of what I think I can accomplish. Um, you know, at the at the federal level, obviously, this is uh, uh, that's largely a function of you know what the imperative of a given executive office is. Uh, obviously, Bush was very different from Obama; was very different from Trump. Um, and you want to make sure that what you're pursuing is actually set up to be successful and resourced well, and prioritized, and everything else. Um, and I think that's super hard to do um, without actually, you know, kind of having a comprehensive explication of whatever that executive agenda is. Um, you know, at the legislative level, I've got a lot of friends that are in state offices, um, state senators, state Congress people. Um, and, and that's something that's obviously super compelling, but is something that, you know, you do a lot more on an advisory basis. Um, conversely, you know, I'm, I'm interested in kind of, uh, the the ecosystem of folks that are kind of adjacent to political decision makers and uh, the ability to influence. Yeah, I mean, these are things like think tanks, but it's also, um, you know, just kind of existing in the space, doing research, synthesizing stuff. Um, it's kind of a layer removed from actually pursuing the elective office yourself, um, but that nevertheless is able to use your word earlier, kind of nudge the behavior of those systems in a way that matters. I think that at the legislative level, not to get too wonky, we've got a really fundamental problem right now, which and, you know, and it is kind of symptomized in folks' lack of confidence in Congress. But you know, designing stuff is hard, right? I mean, what you learn in startup world, what you learn in the innovation space, what you learn in program design, working directly on the ground with folks who need what you have to offer, is that you know, design demands structure that's conducive to creativity and breakthrough insight and is also really really close to the folks most affected by what it is you're doing and absent kind of a crucible that's capable of performing in that way um or absent a design that allows that body to be effective it's really hard to envisage how it's capable of delivering um upon its upon its imperative right and I think we're seeing right now a lot of the structural challenges embedded in the design of our machinery of government. And uh, I certainly haven't figured out yet um, what shifts need to happen in order for some of those fundamental structural problems to go away. Um, but that's a problem that I spend a lot of time thinking about with a lot of other really, really smart people. And, uh, you know, that something of that nature, I think, would really need to take place before that was a serious uh, before that was a serious option for me. So, Zach, thank you so much today for jumping on here and kind of sharing your your views on the world. And I I really enjoyed it. I felt like I got a little 
better understanding of you and definitely didn't expect us to talk so much about magic at the beginning because uh, <laughs> one of the theses of this podcast was to not talk about magic, but you've sort of, you, uh, you know, we were talking about curiosity. Uh, my curiosity naturally led there. So I, I, I have to apologize for, for that, but I, I love doing this with you. I hope we can do another one sometime that will go more into maybe different areas. Uh, but you, you've certainly given me a lot of food for thought, and I hope that you have also enjoyed the experience. I've I've loved it, James. And and one of the things I think that that I've really kind of been internalizing over the last year is I do think for a lot of my life I've kind of put magic in a bucket. And it was kind of like a thing that I did while I was like pursuing all of my other stuff. And uh, what I've realized very recently is that that's just disingenuous, right? I mean, I obviously care about this game to have played it, made it, commentated on it, you know, had it occupy tons of my social time for, for decades now. And also because it's informed my perspective on so much else. Right. And uh, I kind of have had to have a reckoning. And I think this is one of the reasons I've had better results this year of just kind of saying, like, look, like, again, to the point we made about, like, the book writing itself not being a function of, like, what you want it to be on the front end. Like, any coherent story of my life at this point would, by necessity, involve a very significant amount of magic. And acting like it's kind of this, you know, tributary flowing into the river of the stuff that I actually care about, I think is disingenuous to the amount of time that I've spent on it and fails to honor the, the, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of powerful relationships and transformative conversations I've had in the context of the game. And so I hope that, uh, while we may not have wanted to cover as much magic as we did, or, you know, while we may have meandered from the agenda that a takeaway from that can be like, I think for all of us that are passionate about magic enough to be listening to a podcast called humans of magic to really lean into and, and have respect for the formative impact that magic has had on all the elements of our lives. Um, and to view the kind of inner social experience that comes from that as something that's really valuable and meaningful. Um, the last thing I'll say about this is um, I've got a really good friend, a guy named John Johnson, that I he's a professor at Harvard of astrophysics, and we play magic every little bit, um, you know, two or three times a year. But it's been wild to see how that has been something that he's been able to, you know, play with his kids and grow up with, form a local community around that he and I were able to reconnect around after years and years of not having seen each other. Um, and how that's something that he can share with like multiple generations of his family and across geographies and everything else. Um, you know, there, I have very few friends who have known me for two decades, right. Who knew me in Memphis when I was a literal child, um, who've seen me through my ups and downs, who have, you know, know what I'm capable of and what I'm not capable of, who've been present, you know, as relationships have come and gone, as I've lived across different cities, all these different things. Um, you know, there, there's folks I've known from magic that have been some of my longest time friends. And I think it takes a little bit of perspective to start to value the real heft of that. Um, but it's been something that as I've acknowledged has been really enriching to me. So I hope that uh, in talking about magic and trying to integrate it with the other dimensions of my experience, 
it uh, opens the door for all of us to kind of be a little uh, a little more shameless about uh, letting magic kind of leave its fingerprints on the other elements of our lives. I love it. I hope the listeners love it as well. <laughs> Keep my fingers crossed. Thank you for listening to this episode of Humans and Magic. To get more information about the show and to join the mailing list, please visit humansandmagic.com. And don't forget, the Humans and Magic book is now available on Amazon for both paperback and Kindle. We'll see you next time.